Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 15th, 2010. More snow here in uh, the Midwest. Yeah. Um, where's Al Gore? I, I'm just not seeing this whole global thing warming thing panning out. In fact, I read something today about the uh, that whole global warming cooked data hoax thing. That's going way deeper than most people thought. That, but we're not going to talk about that today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to God's Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. That's right. And listen, I am not, not exempt from this exercise. Please, I encourage you, I challenge you, I welcome you to compare anything that I say about God to God's word. And if you think that I've run afoul of God's word, I want to hear from you. By the way, I'm not afraid of critics. I don't think that all critics are somehow loony or people who just want to lash out and hurt me. No, no, actually, I don't think that way at all. I, I thank God for my critics because I'm a human being and sinful human being at that, just like you. And uh, therefore, I am not the epitome of perfection. No, not far from it. So uh, that means that uh, even I am capable of misreading, misunderstanding, and not getting what a passage is teaching and drawing incorrect conclusions from it. Now, I've purposely got an education to help me with that so that I wouldn't be prone to making those types of mistakes. So what happens is is that guys like me who are trained in theology and, and biblical languages and apologetics and stuff like that, we don't make the beginner's errors. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, no, we make the, the more advanced errors, which, by the way, can be the, the more dangerous ones. So, you know, listen, I'm not exempt from this. So this exercise that we, we, we do here at Fighting for the Faith on Pirate Christian Radio day in and day out, this is for your benefit, and this is an interactive experience, which means get that Bible out. If you haven't been reading it for a while, dust it off and get into it. Good study Bible. If you, if you, let me recommend uh, two of them that are good, 
and one that I super duper recommend. Now listen, I recommend the Lutheran Study Bible. I I have a copy of this and uh, have been using it since really about November of last year. And wow, I have never in my life run across a more masterfully done study Bible. And um, just because you're not a Lutheran doesn't excuse you from this and say, oh, I can't get that. I'm, a, I'm not a Lutheran. Uh, no, that doesn't work that way. Okay, so here's the deal. It's called the Lutheran Study Bible. Yes, I understand it has the Lutheran tag on it. But the thing that's wonderful about this is that the notes in this study Bible take you through what people have said about passages through all of Christian history. Now, that means that that Lutherans consider themselves to be Catholic with a small c. We don't believe that the church started yesterday in somebody's home Bible study. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, that does, it doesn't work that way, okay? Instead, we value the contributions of those who have held to the historic Christian faith through all of the centuries. And the church itself, you know, goes back even farther. The church goes back to the Garden of Eden, if you would. And so the Lutheran Study Bible, one of the things that's just absolutely remarkable about it is that it finds things that have been said about texts, some of the best uh, things said uh, about these texts from all of the different periods of history. And so you got you got writings from the Apostolic Fathers. You've got writings from the Antinocene Fathers, from the Post-Nicene Fathers. You have stuff from uh, from the Middle Ages. You have stuff from the Reformation. You have stuff even in the from the 20th century. I mean, there's fantastic things in this study Bible, and it, I, it's the best I've ever used. Now, if you're, if you're afraid of that whole Lutheran title thing on it, then go ahead and get the ESV study Bible. That's a good one. It's it's, but it's not as good as the Lutheran. No way, Jose. Just not even close. I've never used a Bible quite like that. So, and by the way, you can find the Lutheran study Bible at cph.org. I, I don't get any money for promoing it. If you purchase one, I don't get a cut of it. This is just me recommending it. But when you get your study Bible, whatever it is. Don't get the Jesus in me or the self-esteem Bible or the uh, prosperity promises Bible or the Joel Osteen study Bible. Stay away from those things like you would the the, the bubonic plague, okay? We're talking about spiritual poison here. Get a good, good, good scholarly study Bible. Then read it. And when you're done reading it, read it again. And some some of you now listen. The, the, I just want I want to help you out here. Some of you folks who are listening to Fighting for the Faith, you enjoy structure. Okay, you have a personality type where you have the Franklin Covey, a day planner, and you sit there and you put out your to do lists and you keep notes in it. And then at the end of every year, you uh, every month you index what's in your notes in your day planner, and then they go into little boxes and the thing like that. And you do really well with those little reading plans and things. You just love it and you can thrive on it. No problem there. Get a good reading plan. Now, I know this is going to be controversial. If you have a reading plan that has you reading the Bible in a year, may I strongly recommend that you ramp that up? Okay, you're sitting there going, why? Why? Because you need to be in God's Word to the point where you become fluent in it. And fluency in God's Word, if you're only reading the Bible once through a year, it takes some time. 
Okay. Now it, it's a perfectly fine way to do it. Um, but what, what I found is, is that I supplement my, my reading time with also listening to, uh, the ESV audio Bible. Um, uh, that helps as well. It, it, there's certain sections of the scriptures that are not as great as far as an audio Bible is concerned, but a lot of the narrative sections are great if you're going to be li- uh, listening to it uh, from uh, an audio Bible. So get the get the Bible into you, get it into your head, into your heart, into your mind, and saturate yourself with it. And when you get done reading it, read it again, and then read it again. But most importantly, take some time to teach other people what you're learning in God's Word. This is when you really get to own it, is when you get to teach it, because it's not just for your personal edification. God's Word is to be shared. And uh, you husbands out there who have wives and children, um, you need to be teaching your wife and your children God's Word. These small group Bible studies that God has ordained um, are the families. That those are the cell groups that God has ordained. Okay, so fathers be teaching your children, and that you know. And if you're not sure what to teach, or you're not sure how you know what you should be teaching them, sit down and make your pastor tell you. Make him teach you. That you know, make, if you have a CEO pastor, you might want to leave and find a pastor who's actually a shepherd, and you know have that pastor teaching you how to teach pe- how to teach your family God's word. Okay, so God's word, God's word, God's word. God, did I mention God's word? God's word. This is the thing you need to be swimming in, understanding, wrestling with. And uh, what it may also recommend, finding what Christ has done for you in all of the passages of Scripture. The Scriptures are about Christ. That's why we have these genealogies and why we follow the, this particular family through the scriptures to the fulfillment uh, in Jesus Christ and his uh, incarnation uh, and birth via the Virgin Mary. I mean, this is, everything is heading towards and leading up to that man who is both God and man together come to earth to die on the cross for your sins. So anyway, God's word, God's word, God's word. You need to be in God's word. All right. And believe me when I tell you this, that as you immerse yourself in it, study it, take it seriously, mark it, read it, read it out loud, teach it, inwardly digest it, think on it, pray it. There's certain sections of Scripture that you can pray. May I recommend the Psalms as a great place to, you know, praying the Psalms is a good idea. And it's not about experiencing God or having visions or anything like that, no, it, it, the Psalms actually teach you to pray. And so as part of my regular study in God's word, what do I do? I have I, every day, I, one to two Psalms a day, okay? And if I find one that just particularly is poignant and kind of exactly uh, dealing with what I'm dealing with, I will stop and I will pray that Psalm as if it, they're my very words. And I found that that is just, it really teaches me how to pray and also include in your prayer the Lord's Prayer. Just some good stuff. You know, I might want to put together some kind of a resource to that effect. Anyway, so get into God's Word, study it, mark it, teach it, inwardly digest it. God's Word, God's Word, God's Word. Did I mention God's Word? Anyway, so, all right. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I have a little bit of email. And one fact, one of the emails I'm going to be reading today, the first one, is from a gal who was a former 
staff member at Fellowship Church. She worked for Ed Young. And uh, she ha- she's chiming in on uh, on the controversy there. And uh, so we got two emails today we're going to take a look at. And then um, we're going to do some news today uh, from the Christian Post. we got a story about evangelical panel responds to avatar phenomenon. Okay. And, oh, and then the Church of England. Yeah. Um, the, the church that is no longer a church, uh, the Church of England, um, they, uh, the, I know, listen, I understand this February 15th and Valentine's Day was yesterday. I get it. I get it. But listen, you know, I am on a quest to be completely irrelevant. And so as part of my quest for irrelevancy, I think it's important to talk about a Valentine's Day story the day after Valentine's, which just means that I completely missed the timing. And so the Church of England is apparently, yeah, they offered romantic tips for Valentine's Day. So we're going to take a look at that story that was covered in the Telegraph in the UK. And uh, got an update regarding uh, Rick Warren and Mark Driscoll. We'll be talking about that, asking the question, does Rick Warren practice mon- Roman Catholic monastic mysticism? I got a soundbite you might want to hear. And uh, and then for our sermon review today, I have, uh, assisting me today on my sermon review, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, uh, and also uh, one of the co-hosts of uh, the uh, Fighting uh, on the, Pi- the Pirate Christian Radio uh, program entitled Table Talk Radio and Table Scraps. He is going to be joining me as we review the first portion of uh, Rick Warren's keynote address entitled Radical Compassion from last week's Radicalis Conference. So we got lots and lots and and lots and lots of stuff to um, to talk about here at Fighting for the Faith. So make yourself comfortable please your comfort and your listening experience is is very important to us i mean i mean if these uh, seeker driven ceo led uh mega churches are all about having a worship experience think of pirate christian radio and fighting for the faith as very being very concerned about your radio listening experience so that being the case make yourself comfortable. It's okay if you want to listen to Fighting for the Faith while on a treadmill, an elliptical, a cardio machine, although we do not recommend listening to Fighting for the Faith on your iPod while doing laps in the pool. And the only reason why we don't want you to do that is because we're concerned for the iPod. Um, yeah, we don't want you to ruin it. Um, so don't want to go that route. Of course, if you are to, uh, that part of the day when you're able to enjoy listening to Fighting for the Faith, while enjoying an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Why? Jesus himself was a drinker. And uh, so, listen, the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. That's that's no bueno. That's a sin. And, and if you are engaging in drunkenness or drinking to the point purposely to get drunk, well, then you're, you need to repent and be forgiven for that sin. That being the case, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a nice adult beverage a nice glass of wine, particularly maybe some Zinfandel or a cab goes really good with fighting for the faith. Uh, depends on the year um, and what it is that we're talking about. And, you know, we should talk about wine pairings when it comes to sermon reviews. Um, and then, of course, fuzzy bunny slippers if you are in a cold weather region like <clears throat> where I'm at right now, which it just, we just keep getting snow upon snow upon <laughs> snow upon our snow that's already been falling. Did I mention that we have snow outside? Lots of snow. In fact, I don't even think they saw this storm coming. Yeah, you wake up this morning and the people are going, we're going to get six inches from this storm. What? (laughs) Why didn't you see? Huh? Anyway, so all of that said, 
It's uh, time to jump into our show proper. Yep, that means it's time for email. Our first email today comes from Leanne in Texas. Leanne used to work for Ed Young at Fellowship Church. She has an insider's view of my critique and take on the scandal that has been brewing and bubbled to the surface regarding Ed Young's 7,800-square-foot parsonage, his $15,000 espresso machine, and his um, more than $8 million um, leased private jet. Leanne writes, she says, uh, Dear Chris, I just listened to your program from uh, February 9th, uh, 2010, and thank you for taking a biblical and analytical approach to this topic. I am shocked by the assumptions and the blind trust that people are putting in backing and supporting Ed when they don't know the truth. I attended Fellowship Church for 10 years, from 1992 to 2002. I was on staff for six of those years, and during that time, I saw more than I needed to see. I sat behind the scenes with Ed to help him write his sermons. I saw how the staff was treated, etc. I ultimately resigned because I could no longer justify the way people, both staff and congregants, were demeaned, belittled, and expected to just blindly trust. All of my experiences were before there was a plane and a mansion on a lakefront property. The staff at Fellowship is told they don't have to answer any questions about accountability. If anything comes in unsigned, it can be completely ignored, which to some extent I can agree with. You ought to be willing to sign your name to a criticism. It is made very clear that when you, as a staff member, are asked to jump, you immediately say how high and better not uh, question the task. I have friends who were on staff at the same time as me, Esme had to approach many people and ask for, uh, okay, and, and they too have been troubled by what they saw and experienced. I am so thankful that God led me to resign from Fellowship Church. Upon my resignation, I had to approach many people and ask for forgiveness for my actions, all done in the name of Fellowship Church, because I was guilty by association. Were those actions my decision? No. But I did carry them out and felt it was my responsibility to ask for forgiveness and learn from my mistakes. Ed does not lead uh, lead out of love and example. He leads by instilling an unhealthy fear in his employees. So they all become yes people. If you disagree, you are labeled disloyal and then terminated. By the way, Mac Richard, who is on uh, the board, is married to Ed's cousin. Uh, there's a family connection here. Someone on your blog commented on how Ed works 60-plus hours and deserves any compensation he receives. I will argue that completely from my own experience. Ed has a staff of people who are, are who are average to under average in pay scale doing the work. He speaks and then goes all over the country doing whatever he does. I will say that in the beginning days of the church, Ed probably worked 80 hours per week when he didn't have a, a staff to do all the work. I will also say that the spirit of the church was completely different back in the early to mid-90s. I loved the church, its vision and its passion for people. However, as I realized that things were changing, I could no longer in good conscience remain on the staff at Fellowship Church. 
I'm sure that I ha- I had not resigned. If I had not resigned, I would have been terminated for being disloyal because I was beginning to question motive. Regarding accountability, Ed firmly states that if someone asks about accountability, they are wanting to be the person that you are accountable to. I could not disagree with that thought more. I think there ought to be true accountability and don't have any desire to be that person who is on the accountability board. I just want to know that there is a true structure of people who can ask the difficult question and not just be passive yes man or terminated from their position if they disagree or force uh, or, or force accountability. If Reverend Cross, who is also on the board and in the and, and in the broadcast, think that Ed's children will hold him accountable, what child would ask their dad to reduce their standard of living because they think they have too much? Such an ignorant point. I'm saddened by all of this. I know that there are many people who will be turned off by all of this. I'm even more saddened by the people who blindly follow without demanding real answers. I could not agree with you more about a pastor being a shepherd. I've had the conversation many times this past week, and even when I resigned from Fellowship Church, that was one of the main reasons, a lack of care from the top. I pray Ed can come to his senses and see how his extravagance is superficial. I am not against people in the ministry being paid well, but not in excess. That is quite a vague statement. The question then becomes, what is excess? I would venture to say that when you have to set up companies and trust funds to shelter the other companies and revenue building avenues, and then ask your staff to lie about the existence of certain amenities, we have crossed a line. If if in doubt, don't. Thanks for letting me share a few thoughts. I have avoided getting into a contest with other bloggers because it's pointless. I just felt like venting a little. Uh, Leanne, Leanne, thank you for your insider's look and for being willing to allow me to read your email on the air because there's a lot of people. I Actually, there's a few people, not a lot. There's a few people I've talked to who are former staff members of Fellowship Church, and they cannot or will not go uh, on the public record with their um, with their insider's view, either because they signed a non-disclosure agreement or are afraid. So I appreciate your bravery for being able to come out and tell us the truth about what's going on at Fellowship Church. And again, what is our Christian response to Ed Young? Here's the deal. Ed Young thinks he's pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. But in reality, what's obvious is that he's enslaved to sin. We are for Ed Young. How? By calling him to repentance for his idolatry of money. He's worshiping and serving money. And for his lies and his cover-ups, he's enslaved to a very serious sin. And as a result of that slavery and not coming clean and not repenting and not receiving the forgiveness of sins won by Christ for this grievous sin, he's really doing a lot of damage to the body of Christ. So much so that even non-believers are paying attention to the very obvious, obvious doublespeak and the fact that he's not practicing what he's preaching. So what do we want for Ed? Repentance. And for him to be set free from this sin. Just like I would want you to be set free from any besetting sin that has consumed and overtaken you in your life. So... We are for Ed Young and pray to that end. Pray that God would do what it takes to wreck his self-righteousness, open his eyes to his sin and how serious it is before God, 
and bring him to repentance and forgiveness for that sin so that he will be set free and Christ's name would be honored through his ministry, not besmirched or demeaned. That's really what we want. Okay. Miriam writes, and I believe Miriam is from Alaska, the Anchorage area. If she's from the real Alaska, she's uh, let me know that from uh, previous uh, things. This one, this email comes in via Facebook. She says, "Hey, uh, so uh, hey, so thanks very much for the all the resources in the Pirate Cove and for uh, manning a Facebook page. I've experienced some weariness from all the lame comments on the internet this week. Not from your page, but from Mark Driscoll's and some others. Not sure why I thought it would be any different." Uh, when people were talking about Jesus or awesome meaty theology, but I would imagine it gets annoying when you, as it was, depre- uh, when when to you as it was depressing to me. <laughs> I get it, uh, Miriam. I get it, and I think Miriam's a uh, is a uh, is a musician. You know, she likes the cello, and and I don't know how, I don't know how she figured out that I that I like Yo Yo Ma. I that that one still I I must have said something about Yo Yo Ma. And I don't remember it anyway. Uh, older Yo-Yo Ma, not the younger. Okay, we continue. I have a question which I think is really basic, and I did look around in the cove a bit, but could you please point me to in a good direction on this? How does a Calvinist or confessional Lutheran, or maybe should I just give up the labels and say a pirate? <laughs> How does a pirate view witnessing? As a person who did not grow up a Christian but was convinced, convicted, redeemed, and saved later in life, 10 years ago, I feel there is something a bit unloving in the tone of some who are of similar theology. It's not just the snarky comments that you see when a person has made their understanding of theology a god. There's no such thing as a secondary issue, but the whole question of witnessing in the context of election and predestination. I've seen some good things in Piper and Driscoll, but there have to be more good thinkers with compassion and energy for these people out there. Isn't isn't it as important, not just because Jesus said uh, said to, but also because it matters eternally? Doesn't it mean someone uh, something that mo- almost all of my professional friends are without Christ? And is it really wrong of Billy Graham to ask people to decide in his fina- uh, f- uh, finale altar calls despite our understanding that is through Christ and the Holy Scri- uh, Spirit that this transaction comes to be. All these questions, just my theological adolescence? Am I just fighting to hold on to my own false ideas of control or power in the decision of myself, let alone others? Well, anyway, I do apologize for rambling. I would just really appreciate some advice on what to read next because my heart kind of feels like it has been through a ringer. Oh, and one last thing. I love your site and podcast. My husband, Jonathan, and I have a ton of fantastic conversations about the content. I love how these uh, how these blessings have all multiplied and poured grace into our lives and that our two boys are the audience to all of our friendly deepening discussions. Thanks again. You know, Mary, you bring up a good question. Uh, where would you go regarding... Um, uh, you know, a, a resource about sharing your faith. May I recommend an old classic, a book by the uh, gentleman by the name of Paul Little entitled "How to Give Away Your Faith." That I would I would start with that. It's it's a fantastic little resource, and um and it's written from the point of view of the Reformation. Okay, and so that that's a good book to turn to when it comes to evangelism. Now, as as a whole, okay. One of the things that I am concerned with, and I think this comes through in uh, in your email, is that there's a lot of people who really easily um, can point out the theological errors in Billy Graham's decision theology. Okay, by the way, 
pointing out the errors in decision theology, easy. Okay, so easy, even I can do it. Okay, but that kind of misses the point. Okay, um, for every person out there who can readily spot the problem with decision evangelism and decision theology and Billy Graham's altar calls and things like that, I would challenge you to go to the next step. Share your faith with somebody. Tell them about their sins and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. The one thing you have to give Billy Graham credit for, even though his decision theology is not right, is that this guy goes. He goes and he tells people about their sins and he tells them about Jesus Christ and tells them about the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. And you know what? There are people whom Jesus Christ raises from the dead spiritually and quickens them with the faith uh, as a result of the preaching of, of the gospel by Billy Graham, despite the fact that his closing sales pitch is less than theologically biblical, okay? So the reason why this is important is partly because of what uh, Miriam has said, is because we are commanded by Christ to go to all nations, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That includes 21st century America, 21st century Great Britain, 21st century South Africa, 21st century New Zealand and Australia, 21st century wherever God has put you. Okay, We are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And so, um, Miriam, it is a big deal. It is a huge deal that your close friends don't trust in Christ, that they do not know the good news um, and it's a big deal. And so I'm glad that you are beginning to feel um, that something needs to be done along these lines and are interested in going further. Start with Paul Little's book um, the, the, entitled How to Give Away Your Faith. Start there. That's a good place to begin. And um, find a way to evangelize. You know, when you look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, this guy... I mean, first of all, he never did a seeker-driven service. Never once did he preach to felt needs, okay? He was always about preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. And then you look at what Paul did when he was in, when he was in Ephesus. The guy practically had a standing gig at the Hall of, of Tyrannus and in the marketplace sharing Christ. I think that's a great example for us to follow. And um, um, may I challenge all of you, your friends don't know Jesus. And if you're afraid to share your faith, um, well, may I recommend go ahead and start doing it and make all the mistakes now. Get to it. You're, uh, it always cracks me up when when uh, I run across a young married couple and, you know, and they've been married for five years and you ask them, you know, are you going to have children? And they say, you know, we're just not sure if we're financially ready yet. Oh, okay. Well, what do you mean? Well, um, we still don't have enough money in our 401k. We don't, ha um, you know, we haven't set up the college fund yet. And we don't have all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed. And, and, you know, we're waiting for the perfect moment when we feel like we can, it's, oh man, <laughs> have a baby. Okay. <laughs> all of that stuff will get prioritized as soon as the baby arrives. Okay. <laughs> 
you know. So um, what I would recommend doing is don't uh, be obsessive compulsive when it comes to evangelism. Don't be obsessive compulsive to the point where you want to make sure that you have all of your counter arguments and possible answers to every single question that could potentially come up uh, when it comes to sharing the gospel and overcoming objections. Um, may I recommend getting getting just get into the fight and you'll learn as you fight. That's the best way I can put it. And listen, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I want to tell one. Okay, and that is is that. Um, when it came to sharing my faith, I didn't know what I was doing when I first set out to do it. And basically, I, I, in fact, I said something just completely stupid. What happened is, is that my wife and I, after being miraculously rescued from a very bizarre cult-like uh, experience, church, if you would, God rescued us out of that through the, through, uh, the work of a, of a Nazarene woman by the name of Jerry Omley. Okay, my wife and I were were attending a church that you could describe as Patricia King's church or Todd Bentley's church, something along those lines. And this woman, who is not a trained theologian, not a trained apologist or anything like that, just out of love and concern for us, uh, attended a few of the church service services, took copious notes, and very humbly invited my wife and I to uh, lunch at her house and then breached the subject. She says, you know, I took some time to attend your church, and I'm really concerned about you because uh, the the lady who was teaching at your church, she said this, but have you looked at the Bible? It says that. And um, And then she said, and then they said this, but the Bible says that. And through her humble thing, God opened our eyes to the fact that we were deceived and rescued us out of that situation. And what happened is, is that in the weeks immediately following that experience, we were living in Seattle at the time. My wife and I were married in Seattle. Um, uh, there, you know, there was a gal who uh, worked in the in the Washington Mutual building across the street from where I worked. I worked at eleven eleven Third Avenue. Um, in, in, in downtown Seattle, Washington, it, it, there was a bank there that's no longer there called Pacific Northwest Bank. It was, an, it was a startup bank when I had started there. And um, what happened is, is that one of the gals who worked in the legal firm, she was a paralegal in, uh, in one of the law firms in the uh, Washington Mutual Building, uh, 1201 Third Avenue, by the way. And she, uh, and she came into the bank and, um, you know, and actually, what I saw her riding, we were riding the bus together, and I saw her reading the Watchtower magazine, and I and I remember from Christian school that Watchtower equals bad. I couldn't tell you why, but it was bad. I just knew that the Jehovah's Witness thing bad. That's all I knew. And uh, so what happened is, is that she came into the bank, and I said, "Hey, you know, I saw you reading the Watchtower this morning on the on the bus ride into into downtown." She said, "Yeah, I'm studying to become a Jehovah's Witness." And I said, you know, I've I've heard that the Jehovah's Witnesses are like a false religion, and that they really mess up the Bible, and and that they're they're really not a group that you want to be associated with. She's all, really, I'd never heard that before. I'm interested in having a conversation about it. Uh, would you be willing to, you know, maybe sit down and and you know share your thoughts and show me why you have some concerns? I said, absolutely. She says, great. Let's let's do lunch sometime next week. And I went, <laughs> I don't know anything. I didn't all I knew was that JW's equal bad. That's all I knew. And so um you know on my lunch I went to the uh, the, the 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 downtown public library in Seattle, Washington. 
and um and went into the religion section and I found the book Jehovah of the Watchtower by Walter Martin and another book called The Kingdom of the Cults. Checked them both out and um and then, you know, went home that night and started cramming for like I was cramming for a final. Yeah, you know, because I mean, I I had to come up with some the, something that make it sound like I knew anything about what I was talking about, and uh, started studying and 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 kind of learning a little bit about doctrine and how to do comparative religions and how they taught this and how the Bible taught that. You know, some rude, crude kind of uh, understanding of the stuff. But on the bus ride into downtown, one of the things I noticed is is that at the bus stop where I would get off the bus in Seattle. Um, you know, every morning there was some JWs across the street. They were putting in time, you know, because they have to witness so many hours a week and put it down on a time card. There was some JWs standing across the street, holding up their watchtower magazines in downtown Seattle. I thought, you know what, maybe I can try out some of the stuff that I'm reading about in Walter Martin's books and you just try it out on these guys and see, you know, how that works out. And I kid you not the, oh man. The first time I approached these guys and tried to get into a conversation with them about, you know, what they believe and why it's wrong from the Bible, they destroyed me. I mean, just, I mean, it was it was like Mike Tyson versus Pee Wee Herman. I mean, that's how bad it was. I mean, you know, I, I ended up limping away from that theological sparring. And, uh, and, and what did I do? Well, I didn't do so great. So what I did is I went home and I read some more, studied some more. And, um, and then I went and found them, uh, another group of JWs the next morning and tried those arguments out and got completely decimated and destroyed by them. And then, you know, I went and I studied some more and read some more and got dug into the Bible some more, started listening to Walter Martin's radio program at that time. Um, found a group of people who had a ministry dedicated to reaching out to the Jehovah's Witnesses, called them up and, and, uh, attended some of their, uh, informal training sessions on how to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. And slowly, but surely, one day at a time, one step at a time, I went from being completely decimated and, uh, and not even able to hold my own biblically against the Jehovah's Witnesses to being able to actually wound them and, you know, biblically, so to speak, to being able to hold my ground against them to the point where they didn't stand a chance if I showed up to the point where if they saw me coming, they would actually vacate the corner that they were standing on. And I remember the first time the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they saw me coming, just packed up their bags and left. I went and stood on the corner and said out to them in my loudest voice, I claim this corner in the name of Jesus Christ, the one true God in human flesh who died on the cross for all of our sins, and you guys are false prophets, and that's why you're turning tail and running. I... I kid you not, that's exactly what I did. The moral of the story, though, is not how great Chris is. The moral of the story is is that when it comes to sharing your faith, the best way to learn how to share your faith is to do it. Is to do it. To get out there, read your Bible, look at the book of Acts and see how other people have done it. Maybe read Paul Little's book on how to give away your faith. But don't just let this be knowledge that's sitting inside of your head 
get out into the streets, get into the conversation, invite your friends over, purposely find ways in which you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and make mistakes. You're going to make them. You're going to do some things when you're witnessing for the first time that are beginner's mistakes, but you know what? Every beginner has to make them, including you. So if you are not in a regular habit of sharing the gospel with people, then start and make those mistakes and let and grow and grow and grow. You're not going to begin at the top. You're going to you're going to you're going to begin at the bottom. You're going to make some mistakes. So just get that into your thinking and go and do it. And pray and study and learn from your mistakes and pray and study and get out there into the fight. So why? Because there's an entire world right outside of your doorstep. Open your door and look outside and look at your neighbors and your friends. Look, peer over the top of your cubicle and look at all of the people in the in your office that are really that that know you and you have conversations with them. Look at all of them and understand that if they don't trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their destiny is an eternity of hell. Share the gospel with them. It's a matter of eternal life and death. We're up on our first break, a little long, actually. I was waxing eloquently. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put um, in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian gentle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth, Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 <laughs> we'll soon change your mind about that! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. back warning you think that christianity is a spectator sport <laughs> i just might challenge you to get into the battle and share your faith all right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith not only to you, but also to the world. We are listened to literally all over the world. You know, we're, we're up to, what, 70 nations now we're listened to across the, the globe, and, uh, and, and our audience continues to grow. And so it's vital for us to continue our work here in proclaiming Christ and Him crucified and dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment and, and challenging people to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You can partner with us in what we're doing 
by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of two buttons. The first is the Join Our Crew button. Now, when you join our crew, it, it, it is a mere $6.95 a month. That's it, $6.95 a month. We are more than halfway to our goal of a 1,000 listeners who've joined the crew. And when we get to our goal of a 1,000 listeners, that means that on a monthly basis, well, we have the minimum that we need in order to operate every month, every, you know, you know, every year kind of thing. That's the idea. We're <laughs> First hurdle is stay out of debt. That <laughs> big important thing. No operating in the red because, well, we don't have the ability to operate in the red and we don't have a line of credit. So we got to pay our bills and uh, we are on a cash-only basis. And if you figure out, you do the math there, that'll tell you, you know, 695 times 1,000, that gives you roughly what it is our minimum budget is every year. And you'll sit there and go, that's it? Yeah, that's it. I don't own a private jet. Don't have a 7,800-square-foot parsonage. In fact, I'm renting a home, and uh, it's, you know, it's a little over 2,000 square feet, but I've got kids, and they need bedrooms. I can't wait to downsize. <laughs> anyway, so th- th- that's that. So th- uh, again, that's the way we would encourage you to do. Plus, when you join our crew, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, great theological treasure trove of good uh, theology and sound doctrine through the ages of historic Christianity. Good stuff that we have there. And so you get access to our cove when you do that. Of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount um, or above and beyond the uh, $6.95 a month, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. It allows you to donate securely online, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. I gotta watch my uh, time here because <clears throat> I'm, you know, waxing eloquent. So uh, it's time to do a little bit of news, though. From the Christian Post says uh, headline reads: Evangelical panel responds to Avatar phenomenon, pop culture. Who wrote this? Um, this is by Nathan Black from the Christian Post. I want to make sure we get proper attribution. Uh, with Avatar now the highest grossing movie of all time, some evangelical Christians are wondering how to respond to the cultural phenomenon. Seriously? I mean, I mean, oh no, the world's changed because Avatar is the number one grossing movie of all times. Who cares? Before Avatar, it was Titanic. <laughs> you know, did the did the movie Titanic change the world? No. <laughs> After the movie Titanic, there were still sinners that needed to be confronted with their sins, called to repentance, and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? Right. So, I'm sorry, but the movie Avatar is not a game changer. It... it, it, it uh, and you're sitting there going, yeah, but now the pagans out there have an avatar worldview that we have to deal with. No, just preach law and gospel. Show them their sins. Show them their need for a savior. It applies equally to whether or not you've actually seen the movie Avatar or not. By the way, I haven't seen it. Um, a friend of mine saw it, and he described it as uh, the politics of dancing with wolves uh, put in space. And I thought... Yeah, okay. He said, yeah, but the, the special effects, though, really good. Okay, so 
an, uh, basically a feast for the eyes with really bad, you know, anti-imperialistic America resources kind of, you know, politics. Right. How is this a game changer? I just I don't get it. So some have slammed the film for promoting pantheism and, 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 and an anti-human message. Others have joined fellow moviegoers in literally applauding the film as the credits rolled on the big screen. <clears throat> and still others have not denied the entertainment value but are concerned that Christians are getting caught up in the culture of raising few and raising fewer questions. Yeah, they are. The reason why they are is because they're not being taught the scriptures in their churches. <clears throat> Evangelicals are now consumers of popular culture as if there is no moral questions about it, said Dr. Al Mohler, Jr., president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, at the panel discussion on Thursday. Mark T. Kopenauger, a professor of Christian apologetics at the seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, remembers a time when Wheaton College, a Christian liberal arts college in Illinois, prohibited students from going to a movie. Decades ago, conservative Christians would avoid Hollywood and its messages altogether. Today, they have become immersed in the culture. It goes, it's worse than that. They're actually trying to preach sermons based on these movies. You know, strip mine them for the, the spiritual nuggets that are supposedly hiding in these Hollywood movies. Quote, we've become so cool about it that we didn't, we don't realize the dangers, Copenhagen warned. We probably need to take a deep breath and back away from being so enculturated that we don't have any critical distance now. Fellow Southern Baptist Russell D. Moore, uh, dean of Southern Baptist Theological School of uh, Theology, believes the pendulum has swung from a strict fundamentalist generation to one that is exhausted of all the, of all the parameters. <laughs> yeah. In fact... Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, somewhere stashed away in my uh, sermon library, um, I am not making this up. I've got a sermon based upon the movie Goldmember. <sighs> okay, yeah, I, I I can't play that one for obvious reasons. Um, anyway, but I do have it. You can Google it. I'm sure you'll find it. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I know. Just no parameters whatsoever. None. None. Yeah. By the way, I do remember the days when I remember Christians going, "Can you be a Christian and go to the movies?" <laughs> now it's like, uh, "Can you be a Christian and not preach on sermons that are about movies?" It's complete pendulum swing the opposite way. Uh, let's see here. Quote: I think most people in the room have probably seen a movie that your grandparents would consider to be pornographic in a way that was not even alarming to you because you don't even have the tools anymore to discern what's there. <laughs> Yep. Uh, the real danger with Hollywood fl films, Moore says, is not the negative or anti-Christian messages that are obvious, but the subtle ones that even Christians nowadays don't recognize. Well, that's because Christians aren't being taught the Bible and don't have a biblical worldview. Anyway, if you want to read the rest of that, the name of it is Evangelical Panel Response to Avatar, Avatar Phenomenon on Popular Culture. And uh, it, you know what? I'm going to see if there's audio from this. This might be a good Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Interesting. Okay, and talk about <sighs> abandoning the Christian faith. Uh, from the Telegraph in the UK, the headline reads, Church offers romantic tips for Valentine's Day. <sighs> By Jonathan Wynne-Jones from the Telegraph. He's the religious affairs correspondent. We read... Um, Flowers and chocolate are traditionally the most important things for lovers to remember on Valentine's Day. But now the Church of England is offering alternative advice on how to create the perfect romantic moment with tips for couples 
aiming to keep their marriages happy as well as special guidance for those planning to pop the question. <laughs> I am going to <laughs> lose it. I could just feel it coming now. You're serious. I mean, do you remember during Christmas that they, you know, the Church of England's big thing during Christmas was they were telling people to not go in debt, you know, to went for Christmas uh for giving Christmas gifts and they actually put together a um uh, an Excel spreadsheet that people can download off the internet. Uh, that would, uh, you know, that they can use for b- properly budgeting for Christmas. And I kid you not, 100, 200 people downloaded it. Talk about irrelevant. <sighs> so the be- oh, man. Okay, let me read. Um, <clears throat> to celebrate Valentine's Day, couples who have been married for years should get out their best crockery for a romantic candlelit mid- uh, meal According to the church. <laughs> really? Okay, yeah, wow. Let me write that one down. Had no idea about that one. Husbands and wives who are seeking to keep their relationship strong are encouraged to look through their wedding photos, write love letters to each other, and even plant a tree to represent eternal love. Oh, isn't that cute? <clears throat> the advice is part of a new initiative by the church to turn Valentine's Day into a church festival and encourage couples to get married. <laughs> I'm going to lose it. Um, it follows the publication of official figures last week showing that the number of weddings is at its lowest for more than a century. Maybe if you guys actually preached law and gospel, you know, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, people would sit there and go, hey, wait a second. I've been shacking up with my girlfriend for like, you know, six years or something. And, hey, that's a sin. (laughs) I better do something about that. (laughs) First of all, ask God to forgive me for my sin of fornication and then go and get married to the girl. You know, (laughs) I'm losing it. (sighs) Yeah, it's official. Okay. I cannot believe the Church of England. This is I, this is not a church. Okay, it follows the publication of a figure. Okay, the, among the uh, amorous ideas for those planning to go down on one knee, published on the church's Weddings Project website. Uh, that's the, you can visit that website. By the way, it's www.yourchurchwedding.org. Hopeful suitors are advised to incorporate elements from a first date or first meeting to rekindle the original spark. Instead of booking an expensive restaurant, simply returning to the site of a first date might prove to be the most effective trick. (sighs) I could just see some girl going, you know, being taken to a first date website and going, uh, not website, but a first date site and going, you read that Church of England thing, didn't you? Yeah, you caught me. All right, so the church also recommends that one way to improve the chances of getting a positive response to a proposal is to, quote, tell your partner what made you so sure you wanted them for life. However, in a sign of the times, perhaps guidance is also offered on the use of mobile phones and the Twitter social networking site to spread news of the engagement. One of the tips is propose face-to-face. This should not be a new media moment, although you may wish to tweet your big news. Another is switch off your mobile phone, but keep it handy so your fiancé can phone their friends. Churches have invited couples to return to special services today, which will offer cake and champagne 
as well as traditional wedding songs and readings. Yep, I'm going to have to stop reading this because I'm <laughs> I could have a meltdown. <clears throat> when is the Church of England going to get back to proclaiming Jesus Christ, the one true God in human flesh, crucified for our sins and risen from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and call people to repentance in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name? Is that, I mean, they do claim to be a, quote, Christian church. The last time I checked, the founding documents of the Anglican Communion are considered to be uh, documents of an evangelical church, uh, an evangelical Protestant denomination dedicated to proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and Jesus Christ as the one true God in human flesh, and Christianity as the one true Christian faith, and Jesus Christ as the one, as the, as the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, what happened to that church? Yeah, that's some fine advice regarding Valentine's Day. Not sure if anybody will actually be saved as a result of it. We're up on our second break, and when we come back, I have Pastor Brian Wolfmuller uh, on the phone. He's going to be helping me review the first portion of uh, one of Rick Warren's keynote addresses from last week's Radicalis Conference on Radical Compassion. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll have to get to the Rick Warren bite uh, tomorrow. and Because uh, tomorrow I'm going to actually point out, we're laying groundwork in our sermon review today. Um, I want you to hear what Rick Warren said, and then I want you to hear how Mark Driscoll contradicted him. You'll hear Mark Driscoll's contradiction of Rick Warren on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, so you don't want to miss that. But uh, we'll talk about whether or not uh, Rick Warren... Uh, actually practices Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. Got a soundbite that might might lead one to believe that he has bought into Pete Scazzaro's uh, emotionally healthy spirituality, which is really nothing more than uh, Roman Catholic counter-Reformation mysticism dressed up in uh, purpose-driven drag. So um, you definitely don't want to miss that. So tomorrow's program, we're going to be building. We're going to be building off of the foundation we lay on our sermon review. Uh, in the second hour, so you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. You know, my name's Pirate Christian. I'm a new media guy, you know. We'll, we'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O'Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled. That will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said, Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two. Time to uh, roll up our sleeves. It's going to take some time to do this sermon review. I just want to let you know. And we're not even going to get all the way through it. But we're going to be reviewing uh, Rick Warren's uh, keynote address, Radical Compassion, from last week's Radicalis Conference there at Saddleback Church. So let's just get right into it. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon isn't really a sermon. It's one of the lectures given by Rick Warren at last week's Radicalis Conference. And it's about radical compassion, about having a ministry like Jesus. The text that forms the basis for this lecture is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And I've asked my good friend, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, if he would sit in on today's sermon review. Pastor Wolfmuller, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fantastic, Chris. I'm, 
I'm honored and delighted to be on the show with you uh, to be doing a little sermon crunching. Okay, all right. Hang on. Let me kill the music here so we don't get any weird feedback. But I'm glad that you're uh, you're in studio with us, so to speak, via the phone lines today. So, all right. So I I, I called you up ahead of time and told you, yeah, I, I, I need some help on this one. And, and uh, of course, I think that you're like a world-renowned guy when it comes to hermeneutics and uh, stuff. <laughs> If you say so. Okay, yeah. I'll try not to disappoint. <laughs> Just to kind of set this up is, um, you know, we're looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And uh, Pastor Warren um, is going to kind of be ba- basically parsing that out and making the claim that if we have, if we want to have a ministry like Jesus, then we have to focus on the things that Jesus was focusing on. And I think there's some truth to that, and and but then he kind of has a weird way of interpreting uh, Luke chapter four. Maybe I should read the uh, the, the said text so that uh, we uh, at least have some kind of uh, context going into it. Let me read this: uh, Luke chapter four, verses sixteen through nineteen says, "And then he, Jesus, came to Nazareth when he had uh, brought up, uh, when he had been brought up." And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Holy, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Um, real quick, Pastor Wolf Mueller, uh, you know, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, uh, can you give us some, just a real, you know, quick interpretation down and dirty, kind of a cold interpretation of the passage here. Is Jesus here basically saying that the gospel is, is that we have to, uh, feed the poor, uh, visit those in prison and, uh, give sight to the blind? I'll tell you this, this text is a really, a, quite a marvelous text to consider hermeneutics itself. Because we we see our Lord Jesus taking up the text in the synagogue and then interpreting it, and he gives us, if you want, really the basic rule of interpretation of the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, and that is it's about Him. Okay. It, it's it's about uh, so he, he's quoting here from Isaiah 61, which is I believe the fourth of these four servant songs that end the book of Isaiah, where we have all these marvelous promises that the Messiah would be both God and man, that He would suffer for our sins. Uh, that he would make an eternal kingdom, all of these marvelous promises. And, and one of the uh, the characteristics of these promises is that Jesus is the one who bears the Holy Spirit. He bears the Spirit without measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So that so that what Jesus is saying is, look, all, all of these things that you've been waiting for, that you've been longing for, all of these promises... Uh, that that I've made to you through, from all the way from the Garden of Eden to the very last prophetic utterance, all of these now are fulfilled in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the one you've been waiting for. It's it is about Jesus and and his ministry, and, and so he's the one who comes to do these things. Uh, he's the anointed one, the Christ or the Messiah, right? And he preaches the gospel to the uh, to the poor. Uh, so to all people, he proclaims liberty to the captive, a recovering of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that is, his mercy and his love. And, and so he, Jesus is saying, look, these are all of the things that I have come to do. Mm-hmm. Now to take it, and we'll have to listen to what uh, what Rick says, but to, but, but to take this text and then to say, you uh, you can be like Jesus um, is is really a 
terrible, terrible shift. In fact, this is the very thing that the devil says to Adam and Eve in the garden. You oh. can be like God. Uh, so, so, to, so to take the text that is about God and to make it about ourself is really uh, to read the scriptures like the devil. I mean, that's the worst hermeneutic of all. Wow. You know, I noticed in verse 21, let me read the kind of, it's, uh, verse 20, it says, He rolled up the scroll, gave it to back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So it, if, if, if the passage has been fulfilled, then it, it's not about me. Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. How can we fulfill an already fulfilled prophecy regarding the Messiah? Yeah, that is a... I mean, there's a, two doctrines in the Scriptures, the doctrine of the law and the doctrine of the gospel. The right. doctrine of the law is what we're to do, and it's never done. And if this text is law, then that's... Uh, then that would be what it's about. I've got to do all these things. But just the very fact that, as you pointed out, this this is this has happened. This is done. It's completed. It's finished. Uh, is it sh- showing that this is now the work of God for us and for our salvation. And it's uh, and it's gospel. And and so it's the it's the Christian's treasure is the gospel. It's what it's what gives us life and salvation and the forgiveness of sins is the gospel. And and the worst teacher is the one who takes the treasure of the gospel and and steals it away from the Lord's dear Christian uh, by turning it into the law. Okay, let me ask one more follow up question here. Um, when Jesus says he, he basically came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and so. At liberty, those who are oppressed. As I as I read through the fuller context of Jesus's preaching in the gospel and the things that he did, what I find is is that uh, that physical blindness. Yeah, he heals the blind. He gives sight to the blind, but doesn't give sight to every blind person. It's not like he's uh, part of the Lions Club and is all about eyesight. But instead, you have a theme running in Scripture of spiritual blindness, of Jesus rebuking people, saying, do you have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear? Or when he talks about slavery and, and those who are being held captives, Jesus talks about the fact that if you uh, if you uh, sin, you are a slave to sin. It, it, it isn't, if this is good news, wouldn't it be good news to everybody who is by nature born spiritually blind, spiritually poor, uh, a captive to sin, death, and the devil, and oppressed by uh, by him and 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 what's happened in our fallen world. Wouldn't if if Jesus is proclaiming good news to these different people, shouldn't we be somehow seeing ourselves as identified as being poor, blind, enslaved, and oppressed? Yeah, don't you remember? Uh... This letter that Jesus writes to the church in is it Laodicea, yeah. where he says, "You think you're rich, you have all these things. You don't re- recognize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked." Mm-hmm. Uh, so that we are all of these things spiritually and sometimes physically. And you're right; Jesus will most often use uh, one of these kind of uh, um, sign miracles or healings uh, to kind of contrast the fact. So here, here are the disciples, or even or the, or the Pharisees, and the Lord will will give somebody sight, and then the text will say, and the disciples didn't understand. <laughs> so, so it's contrasting these two things all the way through, and especially John does this beautifully, mm-hmm. uh, to show how uh, those that think they see are blind, and those that are blind are the ones that can see. Those that think they're alive are dead, and those that are dead now become alive. So you have this, uh, this marvelous contrast, and it's precisely right. This is, I mean, the chief thing here is Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor, I mean that that's uh, all, all who are impoverished by by the devil and by our 
slavery to him. He is rescuing us uh, by giving us the forgiveness of all of our sins. So, so, right. so the verse that Paul, I mean, Paul plays off of this when it says uh, that he who was rich became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. Right. Uh, and, and that is that that richness is like Jesus says, the treasures that are stored up in heaven, of faith and eternal life. All right. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm reading this text right, you know, because I I didn't realize, you know, like I had no idea that this was a text actually showing us the things we have to do if we want to have a ministry like Jesus's ministry. (laughs) All right. So without any further ado, uh, here is uh, Pastor Rick Warren, uh, Dr. Rick Warren, if you would. Really? Yeah, he has. Where did he get his degree from? Fuller. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, no commentary necessary. <laughs> All right, here is uh, Dr. Rick Warren. You guys look like a bunch of radicals. If ever I've seen a group of radicals, that's it. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to Luke chapter 4. If you don't, all of the verses we're going to look at are on your outline. Now, we've been looking at... Uh, what it means to go back to the roots of our faith. Radicalis means of the root. As we said, going back. And we've looked at radical devotion. Love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And we've looked at radical... Notice that was the law. <laughs> well, yeah, so far so, so law-y. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> la, 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 la. Okay, we continue. ...preaching, which goes to the root of the sin. It looks beneath the behavior... And looks at the lie behind every sin. We looked at uh, radical preaching. Then we looked yesterday morning at radical membership. Which uh, most people, uh, membership means nothing to them. They don't understand the organic nature of membership in the body of Christ. And the importance of having covenants in your church. Uh, And then we looked at uh, radical discipleship. And and I, I shared with you the process that we've used here at Saddleback for 30 years from moving people uh, from uh, no commitment to be willing to die for Christ, to come from come and see to come and die. And, uh, you know, Saddleback has figured out how to bring them in the front and how to also send them out the back. And most churches tend to do one or the other. Uh, in, the, in the last 20 years... One of the things that just strikes me is how much Rick Warren talks about himself. <laughs> When he says Saddleback has figured out, what he means to say is, Rick I have figured out. Yeah, again, you know, one of the quotes from Friday's conference was, I just wanted to vomit. He said, the reason why God chose me to pick uh, to cho- pick me to write the, pur- the purpose-driven life is because he knew that I wouldn't uh, use the money on myself. I had a 30-year track record of being a good steward. That's why God picked me to write the purpose-driven life. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's something, though, because... Uh, these they these guys have to maintain that all of this stuff kind of comes directly through God, and they're kind of the uh, the heavenly HD antenna, you know. Right. So no one else can get can get reception but them, and so they're the ones distributing all this stuff. So right. they become the kind of mystical shami man, uh, or I mean, really to use biblical terms, they they are setting themselves up to be prophets with direct revelation from God, which is really quite dangerous. And and mm-hmm. and you get that language repeated. But then you know what really kind of interested me so far, uh, and it, it would, might be fun to go back and listen to this thing, uh, whoever said it, is this uh, organic nature of church membership. There is a, there is a, um, 
and I, I think he'll probably just skip over that and won't come back to it, but there is a pervasive misunderstanding of the church as a natural organism uh-huh. uh, that is the basis of the church growth movement, uh, natural church development and all this stuff. And so the church is a body, and so, hey, look, uh, a body has to eat, and a body has to go to the bathroom, and a body has to uh, uh, reproduce, and all of this sort of thing, to be a, a body is growing if it's healthy, all this sort of stuff. But it's just... it the. the the Bible never says that the church is a body. It says that the church is the body of Christ, and his body is particularly unique. I mean, his body right. uh, uh, was crucified, and his body rose from the dead. His body happens to be united to the divine nature of the Son of God and sitting at the right hand of God. Now, that is unlike any other body. So the whole idea of natural, uh, the church being a natural organism, is from the very beginning skewed Right. Uh, and dangerous, I think. Right. You know, one of the things I was thinking about this the other day is is that in watching these guys and listening to a lot of their sermons and, and really, you know, sitting in on their conferences, either in person or virtually, is that, you know, it's very common practice for them to to give the litany of the things that they have accomplished. And I'm, I'm beginning to think that what's happened here is that they have set themselves up as prophets and these litanies of, of accomplishments that they're constantly going back to, I think are the, quote, miracles that prove that God is behind their ministry. And, you know, the the miracle that I would prove that God is behind the message that I preach is Christ's resurrection from the dead, because it's not my message, it's his. And so I, I see these things as basically false miracles to buttress their new and innovative theology. Isn't that, so the, so the, this cult of innovation right. means that, uh, that 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 I have an innovation and a new insight into how the church is supposed to magically grow and be healthy. It, that that itself is validation of my call into this sort of innovative prophet sort of role. Right. I, I think you're right about that. I, I hadn't thought about it in that in that way, but I think you're exactly right. Right. I mean, you know, whereas the uh, the Catholics have you know statues of Mary that cry blood and and things like that, and toast and and tortillas that show up with the, with the Virgin Mary on it. Uh, these guys have, you know, we've we've done all these different things, and that shows the miraculous nature that God is behind what they're doing. So, well, we continue. We've baptized over twenty-two thousand last ten years, over twenty-two thousand adult believers. Twenty-two thousand, and that's bringing them in the front door. But we've sent out over eight thousand six hundred on the mission field. By the end of this year, Saddleback will be the first church in 2,000 years of history to have gone to literally every nation. Go to all nations. And uh, that's sending... Our- so he's the first... The Saddleback is the first church to, as a church, as a church congregation by itself to fulfill that particular mission. Yeah. I, 22,000 uh, adult baptisms. I wonder how many of those were already baptized as children and therefore don't count. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I bet a lot of them, you know, because these evangelical churches uh, make their make their dough on um, on kind of finding disaffected people from other congregations. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, this ain't your grandparents' church, so now come over here. We're more exciting than the boring Lutheran church you grew up in, or whatever. Right. Uh, and then they come and be rebaptized, and and. Uh, uh, and just forget about the things Jesus has done because it's all about the things you got to do. Right. You know what? I wonder how many of them are rebaptisms from evangelical churches because because uh, here's the deal: their doctrine of baptism is is that it's it's an outward sign to show the world that you've committed your life to Jesus. That's their doctrine of baptism. And so what ha- I I have known several people 
in, you know, in evangelicalism who've been baptized three and four times because, uh, you know, the first time they were baptized, they ended up backsliding into grievous sin. And so maybe they didn't commit themselves enough. So they want to show the world that they're, they're going to really try harder this time. And so they get rebaptized and then, and then they, it's backslide and then they get rebaptized again because apparently they weren't serious enough the first two times. Right. No, yeah. For the evangelicals, I mean, baptism is just clearly this act of obedience and it only matters if your faith is sincere. So baptism is built on the foundation of your sincere faith. And if your faith crumbles, I mean, imagine building a house on a foundation, and the foundation crumbles, then the house crumbles also. So you've got to right. build the foundation again, and then you've got to build the house again, over yeah. and over and over being baptized. While, while the Bible would give us the exact opposite, baptism is the foundation upon which our faith is built. So, right. so Paul says, let God be true, and every man a liar. I mean, God, when he baptizes us, he's telling us the truth about us. Exactly. Uh, even if we, uh, if we uh, abandon that truth, or run from that truth, or fall from that truth, it is still true that he's marked us with his name and called us to be holy. Amen. All right, let's continue. Our members out. How do you do that? It's through radical discipleship. Now, today, we're going to look at two different things. We're going to look at uh, radical compassion how Jesus met the needs of other people, how he did ministry. And we're going to look at uh, radical mission to all nations and how Jesus uh, sent his disciples out and actually what he told them to do specifically. Now, this passage that we're going to look at this morning, Luke chapter 4, Jesus, uh, as you know, was 30 years old when he was baptized by John the Baptist. He got his first disciples, Andrew and John. Um, He does the miracle at Canaan. Uh, where he turns the water to wine. He goes home to Capernaum for a while to be with his family. And uh, then at Passover, he goes down to Jerusalem. He does a bunch of more miracles. He cleanses the temple. He ministers around the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching, he's healing, he's preaching, preaching, teaching, and healing. And uh, he's very, very popular by this time. Very famous, very popular. And at the end of his first year of ministry... He goes back to his hometown, and at the end of his first year of ministry, we have his inaugural message. After he's been serving for a year. That's kind of uh, a stretch, don't you think? His inaugural message after a year of ministry? I mean, where in the text does it say that this is Jesus' inaugural message? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's his first sermon in his hometown or something like that, but... Uh, I, I, I wonder what he's going to do with this thing. I mean, if this is a side point just to kind of show that he read the context, and I guess that's all right. But, uh, it, I mean, he could be pointing out that this is his, the first sermon that's really uh, given in Luke or something. Uh, is he going to make a big point out of this? Uh, well, he, well, he just watch what he does with it. It's rather interesting. Here we go. And uh, it, it's his recorded message. Uh, in his hometown, and it says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside, and he taught in the synagogues, and everybody praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So he's in his hometown church. These are the guys who saw Jesus when he was a, a young boy. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words. Notice the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, let me make a couple comments before we actually get into this. Jesus is quoting here Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, Some manuscripts leave out one of the phrases that he says here. Uh, Jesus adds in a quote from Isaiah 58, and he makes this announcement almost a full year after his ministry begins. Here's the point. We always say, practice what you preach. You heard that? Practice what you preach. Well, that's not really biblical. The Bible teaches, preach what you practice. What do you think of that? The Bible says, preach what you practice. Uh, what? Yeah, I, uh, all of a sudden he had the text and he read the text, and which is great. I mean, the text is beautiful. And then he says, "But really, I'm going to talk about something else." <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he says, "This is what I'm going to talk about: uh, preach what you practice." Uh, what a you know? Have you and I ever talked about this heresy two-step, uh, this dance that everyone does? Uh, uh, we might have talked about it, but I don't think on the air. The heresy two-step is that was that uh, invented down in Texas? <laughs> no, probably Germany. <laughs> so the way this thing works is you start with a text, and I think you can really trace false teachers, and you can see them doing this all the time. Once you identify, you start with your two feet on the text. Uh, you got to give the illusion that you're going to be teaching on the text. And then you, you take a step backwards, and it's a, you slide backwards into an abstraction. So you, you move from the text to, a, to an idea about the text or a, to a word in the text or to something like this. So you, t- you take the text, and then you slide back into an abstraction. And once you've abstracted the text and made it into a general principle or something like this, now you can wiggle around in whichever direction you want. Uh, and you can make it say whatever you did, whatever whatever you want to say. And really, and so you're not instead of teaching the text, you're you're pontificating on this abstraction which you have drawn from the text. And I think this is precisely the move that Rick has made. We'll have to see if he starts to shimmy around, and and it's the it's the wiggling around that you can identify that someone's doing the heresy two step. Okay. But but they, he's taken the text, which is Jesus has said that look, I, I am the promised Messiah, uh, that I bear the spirit in full measure to the world, that I'm restoring the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit to humanity in my death and resurrection. I mean, that's what he's getting at here. But you abstract it and you say, we uh, preach what we practice. And now you can, you can begin to shimmy around this way and that way, uh, calling people out for not preaching what they practice or for not practicing or whatever it is mm-hmm. and saying how we do it better. So that you've, 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 what you've done is you've kind of, you've, you've cut yourself loose from the bonds of the text and it allows you to move around like this. So right. uh, I've identified, I think, in, the, in this simple move here, Rick has 
begun to make the first move in the heresy two-step, and I think we'll begin to see this play out in, as he dances with the text, right. or as he dances away from the text. Uh, so. Right. I want to point something out here, and maybe maybe you're holier than I am, okay? So it just it might just be me. But every time I teach on the Ten Commandments, um, I'm completely struck by the fact that I don't practice the Ten Commandments very well at all. In fact, every time I read through the Ten Commandments in the small catechism, I, 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 I'm nailed to the wall and all of my self-righteousness is undone. So um, am I therefore then disqualified from teaching the Ten Commandments because I don't practice them perfectly? <laughs> Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course not. Oh, goodness sakes. I mean, Jesus, of course, can preach what he practices. Mm -hmm. I mean, because he is perfect. Uh, And so he, uh, so that his... his preaching and his practicing match up perfectly. I mean, absolutely perfect. Okay. Uh, but but no, we we stand as sinners, and so if we if you're right, if if the content of our preaching is limited to the uh, extent of our practice, then we could uh, we could never preach anything. Right. I mean, goodness, that, that this is terrible. Like, except for, uh, I mean, we we would our preaching would if we were, I guess if we were preaching what we were practicing, our preaching would start to sound an awful lot like Paul, where he talks about his own weaknesses, his right. being chief of sinners, and and, and and it was coming back to the forgiveness of sins. The the only way that you can get someone someone says we preach what we practice, and then he's going to start preaching about how all all these good works and stuff. This is the sure sign that you're listening to a Pharisee preaching, uh, because it's only the Pharisee that's convinced that he's actually uh, keeping all of these laws and practicing all the things that God has commanded. Right. So he's seeing law where there's gospel. He's seeing principle where there's where there's clearly Christ in what he's done for us. All right. Let's continue. See what happens here. Jesus had been serving for over a year, and then he announces, this is what I'm doing. We do the exact opposite. We announce what we're going to do, and then go do it. Jesus did. You sound a little uncomfortable with this point. Yeah, I see what he's doing now. Uh, are we, is this the heresy two-step? Okay, all right, let's continue. Did it for a year, and then he says, let me tell you what I'm doing. Let me give you the strategy. Now, hey, Chris, now what about this? Uh, because uh, because m- while it might be true that Jesus has been going around and doing ministry for a year, and mm-hmm. then he comes and preaches about it, he, he, his preaching happens to be the text from Isaiah 61. I know Rick mentioned Isaiah 60, but it, I checked here. It's Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Uh, and, and Isaiah happened to preach that long before Jesus had done the work. Right. I mean, uh, so, I mean, just even the very fact that Jesus doesn't add the text, I mean, he just quotes Isaiah. This is... Uh, an indication that sometimes the Lord will announce long beforehand the things that he's going to do. Right. Uh, I, I'm not sure that you can make a lot of hay out of this thing. Uh, the, the Lord will say what he's going to do, and he'll do what he's going to do uh, in any order that he wants to. Right. Well, let's let's continue and see what Rick is saying here, because, I mean, you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you have a piece of paper, this is kind of a fill-in-the-blank kind of uh, lecture here, but apparently Jesus is telling you his strategy. This was, and and what I, I've got to bring my MBA into into uh, into play here. Rick Warren is a disciple of Peter Drucker, and he's one of the innovators responsible for taking Peter Drucker's uh, leadership and management concepts and applying them to the church. And so this is a this is a industry conference of CEO pastors 
that are attending Radicalis. And um, he's reinforcing uh, MBA business strategies. You know, so what he's talking about, look at Jesus's strategies, look at Jesus's tactics. He's announcing what he's doing. And if you want to have a ministry like Jesus, you have to do these things. And so what this basically is, is this is a pep talk to people who've bought into the CEO management style and supposedly trying to look for principles that they can apply to their CEO uh, styled, uh, quote, ministries. You know, this this is an MBA level talk in, in some ways. I heard that Saddleback, by the way, is going to be opening up a seminary and they're not actually going to be offering an MDiv. It's going to be an MBA. So really? <laughs> well, he is opening a seminary. That I, last... think, I think this is I think this is classic because if you're if you're a uh, an MBA, you know, and you're in business world that and you and you get this stuff wrong and you're not paying enough attention, then your business uh, or whatever happens, your business fails, and and uh, and you got to go start over, try again, et cetera, et cetera. But in the church, there's no, there's that, there's not that accountability, you know. Right. So you could have this, you have the, all these pastors that are are in in no way fit to be NBAs, to to be CEOs, to run a bit. I mean, if they were running an actual business, they would just be it'd be in the tank after about twenty minutes, you know. Right. Uh, but the, but but because they're in the church and the Lord's people are patient and generous and all of this sort of stuff, this this kind of foolishness is never held accountable. Uh, they, uh, people are working so hard to make sure that they don't fail, so they just kind of waft along, and these guys think that they're you know have some sort of measure of success when. Oh, what a disaster! Right. But even so, so now what? So what you're what we're getting here from Jesus' sermon from Isaiah 61 mm-hmm. is the is the mission value venture statement of the uh, of what the church is supposed to be like. Is that the idea here? In, in, in a way, he's basically claiming that Jesus is laying out his strategy. Now he hasn't told us what Jesus' mission and vision was. We missed the vision casting sermon from Jesus, apparently. But uh, <laughs> well, let's continue and see how this unfolds. So we're going to take this passage today, we're going to dig into it, and we're going to look at three things. Who Jesus came to help, or the target, or the focus of his ministry. We're going to look at uh, what he came to do, or for lack of a better word, the tactics. What what he came to do, the tactics, the, the features of his ministry. And then we're going to look at how we can have a heart like Jesus. A radically compassionate heart. All right, let's get right into it. Who Jesus came to help. Jesus' ministry focuses on five groups of hurting people. Now, I want you to pay close attention because he's going to insert a phrase into the text that isn't in that text. But but listen listen carefully. I'll point it out as we get there. If you want to have a Christ-like ministry, you must focus on these same five types. Okay, just listen to the law there. No, that was a very legalistic statement. If you want to have a ministry like Jesus, you must do this. I know, and here and now he's going to be the 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 kind of um, the shaman unfolding the secret never seen before. Right. Uh, no, I I haven't found this interpretation in any of the commentaries, and I checked about fifteen of them uh, to see if any of them uh, came up with this interpretation. I, I was reading, by the way, I, I was uh, Luther's commentary in the last words of David, and he was pointing out there, I've got to do some more work on this, but he was pointing out how the devil in the Garden of Eden tempted Adam and Eve particularly to sin against God the Son, 
when when the devil said, if you eat it, you will be like God, mm-hmm. because it's Jesus who is in the likeness of the Father. Right. And so Adam and Eve were tempted now to take the place of Jesus, and, and I'm just, and, and this is on my mind, and so every time he says you, that you, you want to be like Christ, and Christ-like, and all of this, all, all I can think of is this the original temptation, you can be like God. So now we're going to be uh, uh, little gods on the earth, so that rather than being those that uh, receive the benefit of, of of Christ and His death and resurrection, we are the ones that are giving out that benefit, uh, even from our own resources in some sort of uh, crazy, uh, blasphemous way. And this is really uh, a very troublesome uh, take on the text. Okay, well, let's see where he goes with it. If you want to be like Jesus, you must focus on these same five types. Here they are. Number one are the poor. He says, I came to help the poor. And I call these the have-nots. The have-nots. The poor are the people in life who are lacking in some area. Now, there are actually three different kinds of poverty. You might write these down. There's material poverty. Uh, question, which of the miracles that Jesus performed ended up uh, miraculously solving somebody's poverty problem? I mean, was Jesus the, you know, the heavenly lotto guy coming around and passing out winning tickets? <laughs> you remember they did catch the coin in the fish's mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just to pay the taxes. I mean, thanks. <laughs> you know, couldn't, couldn't you have actually had it to be a higher denomination coin so afterwards we can afford a venti latte at Starbucks? <laughs> Uh, we continue. And, of course, the world is filled with people with material poverty. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day. There are a billion people who live on less than a dollar a day. We're working in countries, many, many countries. One of them is Rwanda, where the average income is 68 cents a day. You try living on that. Most of the world lives in poverty. If you have any coins in your pocket right now, if you have any coins sitting in a jar or on a counter at home, you're already wealthier than 95% of the world. You know what's really funny is that this is actually kind of heading in the direction of the liberal social gospel. Yeah, it's, isn't it something, I mean, that we know the central theme of the, uh, of the scriptures is justification, but the social gospel takes it and it makes it social justice. Right. So justification becomes social justice, and, and now uh, the, the inequalities in the world uh, uh, are are seen as a as a crime, uh, and now you start to get into some sort of socialistic kind of redistribution uh, in in the idea, in this remaking of fairness, and, the, and you get these all these utopian ideas it has nothing to do with what Jesus is, is talking about at all. Right, and you know I would even say you know the, you know the other aspect of this is that you know, again we're missing. One of Jesus's key teachings. I mean, look at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, it, we're talking about spiritual poverty, that we all are poor. Every one of us. This is good news to everybody, not just those who happen to have at the moment, you know, don't have any extra spare change in their in their in their uh, life. I mean, you know, the money kind of comes and goes sometimes. You know what I mean? And uh, and then on top of it, you think about uh, Paul's admonition, you know, at the end of many of his epistles, he says to uh, those who are owned by other people, talk about poverty. I mean, I'm so poor, I don't even own myself. He says, slaves, obey your masters, you know. Yep. 
And I, yeah, Jesus doesn't seem so worried about this. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we know for certain. I mean, without a doubt that that uh, that poverty does not exclude a person from the kingdom of God. I mean, physical poverty right. and. Uh, th- that Jesus himself says he's got no place to lay his head, that he, in his life and ministry, uh, was himself material, materi- materially poor. Right. Uh, so. so if you want to have a ministry like Jesus, you need to, be, you need to uh, sell your house and become a camper. You, you know, <laughs> stay in a KOA or a rest stop. Or, anyway, we continue. You need to understand that. You live in America, you're rich. The poorest of the poor are rich by the world's standards. Most of the world would love to have the problems of the poor in America. Because at least we have a safety net here. There's material poverty. Then there's moral poverty. People who've lost all their moral conscience and any desire to do good. Wouldn't that be all of us by nature? Yes. Don't, no, don't get go all theological, though, Chris. Come on. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I just read in like you, Ephesians you two. You're going to interrupt the flow of the heresy two step because you see what he does. You, you, so you take the word poor. That's a biblical word there, and now you're going to abstract it, and you can do whatever you want with it. So, uh, uh, so we got to see where he's going. So you have material, moral. Uh, these are all start with M's. Is this on purpose? <laughs> yes, probably. Uh, let's continue. And then there's spiritual poverty. Nope. Oh which is the worst of all. Mother Teresa says that's the the worst kind of poverty, spiritual poverty, people who don't know God. Mother Teresa says that's the worst kind. What about the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Mother, oh, man. They don't know that God has a purpose for their life. They don't know that their life matters to God. So, so spiritual poverty is the people that haven't read the forty days of purpose. They don't have a. They don't understand. They have a purpose for God has a purpose for their life. Oh man, what about sin? <laughs> yeah, in some ways, I don't mind uh, if if a guy will take up sin and make it uh, and make a person passive with their sin, kind of like Rick Warren is doing. You just can't do that all the time, you know, right? Uh, because then you begin to become detached from your moral culpability. But uh, but you know how so. Uh, so one of the kind of conditions of poverty is that is this kind of victim sort of thing. I didn't. I just ended up here, and it's totally unjust and everything like this. Rather than seeing myself as an enemy of God, uh, as a, as a hater of God in my natural state, uh, which is very kind of active in the way that the Bible talks. Right. Uh, but this is very kind of a passive sinfulness. So yeah, exactly. Uh, it's. I think it's all right every once in a while. To I mean, because if you can. Uh, you, look, you're you are uh, the the uh, on the uh, the devil's uh, uh, the object of the devil's wrath and the mm-hmm. devil's attacking and stuff. If you can, I mean, if you can point that out to people, that's sometimes helpful. But we always have to be responsible for this thing. I mean, our spiritual poverty is our own fault. It's not like we were. Uh, uh, we say, well, we were born in in the spiritual slums, and so God is a. Uh, he doesn't hold us accountable for this sort of thing. No, he does. Right. Well, I mean, there's Adam, you know, with his fig leaves on going, it was her. This is the woman you gave me. She's the one who gave me the fruit. <clears throat> we continue. They don't know about the love of Christ and the cross and all that God died for. So there's the poor. Second, Jesus said, I came for the brokenhearted. I came for the brokenhearted. Now, th- that's this is the one he's sticking in there. Okay. When you read the Luke text, where does it talk about the brokenhearted? Um, hang on a second. I have to consult my computerized Bible. 
uh, from the English sanctified version. Um, the Lord is the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind and liberty to those who are oppressed. Jesus, uh, Rick Warren is sticking this uh, broken hearted thing in here. Um, Where is he getting that from? It's it's actually from the majority text. Okay. <laughs> so so that comes from the majority text. So the King James and the New King James would have it, and I believe this is where he mentioned that uh, he adds a line from Isaiah forty nine, uh-huh. uh, and that would be from uh, uh, to heal the brokenhearted would be uh, an addition from Isaiah forty nine. So the so the Nestle Holland, which the ESV and the uh, NIV and the NASB and stuff. The, the 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 new critical Greek text would have that omitted, but it would be in the in the other textual tradition. So. Got it. Okay, so uh, he's he's sticking. He, so, but he did, the funny thing is, is that it wasn't there in his original reading, and now all of a sudden it shows up, which is kind of weird. All right, let's continue. Let's go with the brokenhearted. Let's find out what this means. Now, the first are the have-nots. I call these people the the letdown. These are the letdown in life. They're the people who've been disappointed. This, this phrase, actually, uh, the brokenhearted, is, is a, a phrase from the Old Testament. It's actually from Isaiah 69, 20. Uh, David there says, insults have broken my heart and left me weak. And any pastor knows what it means to be criticized. Insults have broken my heart and left me weak. These are the, the let down. So the brokenhearted are pastors who've been critiqued? <laughs> I'm, oh Look, man, we're, we're, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Here we are. <laughs> Critiquing wow. Rick Warren. Oh man, we're engaging in breaking Rick Warren's heart. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, there's actually a condition, I don't know if you know this or not, called broken heart syndrome. It's an actual medical condition where a traumatic event triggers the brain to release chemicals that actually weaken your heart. It's called broken heart syndrome. Now, what causes a broken heart? Well, lots of things, but primarily three things. Number one, you might write these down. Disappointment breaks your heart. Disappointment. Number two, rejection breaks your heart. And the third is resentment, which is the worst of all. Resentment will break your heart. The the Bible talks about not having a root of bitterness. So Jesus says, I come for the have-nots and I come... For the let down. Number three, he says, I've come for the, the imprisoned. I've come for the imprisoned, the prisoners. And these are the locked up people in life. If you're going to have a Christ-like ministry, you must care about people who are locked up. We've actually planted churches in prisons. Saddleback has planted churches in prison. One of them had about 450 members in it. It grew from zero to about 450 in a prison. High maximum Jesus cares about prison. That's why we have Celebrate Recovery. It's why we have prison ministry. But the truth is there, by the way, did you know that in America, two and a half million people are in prison? Isn't he kind of missing the whole point of this text? Yeah, I think uh, this this is kind of binding and loosing business, which Jesus is talking about. Uh, it, it happens especially with the demons. He binds up the demons and he binds up the devil and he sets those free. Uh, so Hebrews 2 says that uh, that by his death he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, so that he could so that he could uh, set free those who their entire lives were held in captivity to the fear of death. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so this is precisely what Jesus does. Uh, so, so you're right. I mean, there is a, a sense where 
Uh, I mean, it's it's a strange sort of thing what what Rick is doing here because you can't tell if he's gonna if the word is gonna mean the actual thing that it means. So prisoners means people in prison, or uh-huh. if it means something more abstract. It kind of uh, there's not much consistency here with this guy. No, uh, it's kind of going back and forth. Yeah. Is, so so it kind of throws you off. I mean, I, I just to say, hey, the church should be in prisons. That's a fine thing. I mean, that's I, I yeah. That's the thing is is that there's like a nugget of truth here. It's not like he's completely off, but he's off just enough that he's turned this thing into law rather than gospel. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, this this whole thing is now what what we have to do rather than what Christ has done, and uh, and that is the. Uh, that is the 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 essential error here. Yeah. All right. Let's continue. Two and a half million Americans. We have the largest prison population in the world. America does, and there are million more, millions more globally behind bars. And Jesus says you've got to care about the prisoners. But there are people. Did, did Jesus in that text say you've got to care about the prisoners? I think that falls under the general uh, command to love your neighbor. Right. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, he says, he he does not say, you have to care about the prisoner. He says, uh, he, that is God the Father, has sent me, that is Jesus, to proclaim, that is to preach, liberty to the captives. That's right. what the text says. Yeah. So that, so that who is the one doing it is Jesus. Right. You know, and here's the deal. I mean... It's a valid implication and fruit of the gospel for God's redeemed and regenerated Christians and sheep to go and visit those in prison. I mean, I mean, when you look at Jesus is, uh, you know, talking about the last day, he says, you know, and you came and visited me in prison. And what did the sheep say? We did. <laughs> when did we do that? You know, you know. We don't keep track of our good works. I mean, it, it, you get a feeling that Rick Warren on that day will say, "Oh yeah, we saw four thousand nine hundred and twenty-seven prisoners in the last six months, or something." Yeah. Man, this guy's quick with the numbers. I'll tell you. Yeah, because here's the deal. One of the things uh, that's important in Drucker's CEO training, leadership training, is is that you have to focus in on things that you can measure. Uh huh. Uh-huh. It's all about measurement, and so. Uh-huh. I mean, even Rick Warren at the Radicalis Conference talks about the fact that uh, we re- measure discipleship based upon obedience. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm not. Oh, I'm not making man. that up. You know, okay. you know the guy. You've seen these guys, the people that measure. There's two types of people that measure. You know, there's the guy uh, at the gym with a little stretchy tape, and he's measuring his bicep in front of the mirror in front yeah. of everyone, and yeah. you're like, oh boy, you know, this is, you know, he's got to get a longer tape because he's got this 72-inch bicep or whatever. And then there's the other person that measures, and that's the person that really early in the morning uh, gets up and steps on the scale in the bathroom and says, oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm that second guy. <laughs> <laughs> Pride and despair. That's the only two things you can get when you start to measure everything. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing <laughs> is, is that when I try to measure my obedience against the Ten Commandments, I can't say that there's been a single day in the in you know the 30 plus years that uh, that that I remember being a Christian that Christ has um you know that I've been able to say yep boy I'm telling you I'm seeing some major improvement it seems like the lo- the older I get 
uh, the less I feel like I'm improving because I, I really, the more I study the scriptures, the more I really understand just what's being demanded of me in, in the law. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not, I know. it's thought, word, deed, things I've done, things I haven't done. I mean, you got sins of omission, commission, you know, it, 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 the sin thing is really, really nasty. I know. I, uh, I, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and the, uh, the 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 light of Christ then shines as it shines into the darkness you know of the crevices of our own life and then we realize what rotten miserable sinners we are and so that this measuring thing ought to when we start to measure it ought to bring us to despair to despair of ourselves and our own goodness and our own works and then to go clamoring around everywhere we can for Jesus I mean right. in the scriptures here and there looking for his death for us looking for his forgiveness looking for his mercy looking for his promise this is how someone who who has been rightly convicted of their sin by the holy spirit through the scriptures will read the bible looking on every page for Jesus and his mercy yeah and if you see someone that's reading the bible not looking for Jesus and his mercy on every page then then the holy spirit then has not yet uh done the proper work of convicting them of their sin right it seems like every time i have two pennies that i think i can rub together of my own self-righteousness they just evaporate in my hand as soon as i look again at the ten commandments they were illusionary pennies this is what we do ha we have to i mean the law is showing us that we have to declare a moral bankruptcy that yep. we have no we have no wealth in our own righteousness and in our own works, in our own spirit, in our own minds, whatever it is. Right, and isn't that the scandal of the cross? Is that all of these people who've squandered their lives in sin, and uh, and you know, and have have I mean, have, have obviously not done what is necessary to be deemed righteous? They're the ones who show up before Christ's bankruptcy court, and he says, debt paid in full, shed on the cross, debt paid in full. Oh, I know. Can you believe it? I mean, it's just, uh, talk about radical, you know? It's right. all about this radical stuff. But yeah. this, is, this is radical. Yeah. Uh, the gospel is radical. This law stuff, I mean, if you're, if you're dancing around with the law, you can only get so radical. But when, when the gospel steps in and... and and you start to get this free and undeserved grace and merit of God that it's just it's unbelievable it's it's uh it's astonishing yep and that's the here's it's so astonishing that it can save somebody even as wretched as me is you i i've i've you know i know you're wretched pastor wolf <laughs> Yes. We all are. That's the thing. <laughs> all right, let's continue. Let's see. What... Well, the, well, the gospel then, just to finish this point, the gospel is always then coming to us as a surprise because right. we know our own wretchedness and our own sinfulness. At least we ought, so that the, so that the love of the Lord and His and His smiling on us always comes to us as a as a shock. Yep. Me? Are you sure that this forgiveness is for me? This mercy is for me? And yep. this, and and the Lord says yes, even even for you. Yep. You, uh, I'm too poor. I'm I'm locked up in prison. I I'm a I'm bound to all of this to the devil and all of his ways. I, I'm blind. I'm oppressed. I, I've got nothing at all. I, uh, and, and are you sure that this this gift is for me? And the, and the Lord Jesus says yes for for you, without a doubt. And so we have this marvelous assurance. Uh, in his in his radical uh, gospel. Uh, amen, amen. All right, <laughs> and I agree. That's right. The whole scandal of the thing is that big surprise and shock of an aha. And and you know, those of you listening to the sermon review, 
You think you you think you've outsinned Christ and His cross and His mercy and forgiveness. You think that uh, you're too poor, you're too bankrupt. You're, you're you're just now beginning to get to the point where you can really get the gospel if that's where you think, because you are. <laughs> and Christ died for all of your sins and paid every bit of your debt that you owe to God in His justice. All right, let's continue. Imprisoned by a lot of different things. And when you talk about the locked up, let me give you some other things that lock you up. Number one is addictions and compulsions. They'll lock you up in a self-imposed prison. Wouldn't that be sin? <laughs> addictions and compulsions. Oh, I was just addicted. No, you're enslaved to sin. <sighs> secrets are a prison. You're only as sick as your secrets. They'll lock you up in a prison, a self-imposed prison. Lack of education. Ignorance is a, is a self-imposed prison. And fears. Fears will lock a people up in self-imposed prisons. Jesus said, I, I've come for the have-nots, I've come for the let-downs, and I've come for the locked-ups, those who are prisoners. And then he says, number four, I've come for the blind. Now, who are the blind? Well, I call the blind the shut-out. Because when you're blind, you can't see... You're shut out of a lot of things in life. Did you know that actually in the world there are 50 million people who are physically blind? 50 million blind people. How do you know uh, all these numbers? It's amazing. I, I have no idea. It makes them sound so smart. But here's the deal. I mean, <laughs> if I'm supposed to have a ministry like Jesus, does that mean I have to set up an eye center, you know, attached to the church? Do I need to join the Lions Club? You, you, you know, do we have to you know, be handing out, uh, you know, spectacles and and glasses to people who are who, who are legally blind? What? Do, I'm seriously. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I don't know. There is something here where that Rick is able to to, to um, when he's able to make this move because you're reading along and you say blind. Okay, I got an idea what blind is. It means people that can't see, and I know that in the scriptures there's. Uh, Jesus is often pointing out that that uh, physical blindness is not what is not the true dangerous blindness. Uh, what the true dangerous blindness is is people that don't see that he's the Christ. That right. Don't, that don't see uh, that don't see uh, him as the Messiah. And in fact, that blindness is perpetuated by those who would read the Bible and not see it about Jesus, but rather about themselves. This is. So this is the blindness that's being played. So we got I got an idea about blindness, uh, but and then we and we say, ah, oh, this is nice that Jesus gives sight to the blind. We have the miracle uh, coming up in the Gospel of Luke, where the where the man cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, and he heals him. And then Jesus heads to Jerusalem and tells his disciples he's going to die, and they don't understand. I mean, we you know we see these sorts of things. But that what Rick does is he he gives he gives all of these these kind of specific things he gives them their own kind of abstract names so the poor right. are the have-nots the broken-hearted are the let-downs and then and then now and the blind these are the shut out and now he can he can play off of this he he can talk more freely apparently and more conversantly about these these categories that he's that he himself has named rather than this the categories that the scriptures have, have given, and it makes me a little bit nervous. But I can see the the attraction of it too. Oh, now I can get a handle on the, what it means to be shut out and locked up. And yeah, locked I, I have a measurable way of determining whether or not I have a quote Christ-like ministry. Yep. You know, and you know, if you look at John chapter nine, one of my favorite. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospels. You have. 
Uh, Let me read the opening and the closing of this passage, and I'll kind of summarize the middle of it. John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And uh, Jesus answered, it was, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, that the, uh, that, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We, we must work with the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when, one can, uh, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made some mud with his saliva. There's some means of grace here. Ew. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So he hadn't even seen Jesus at this point. And this causes an uproar. And he ends up appearing before the Pharisees twice because he was, uh, you know, apparently healed on the Sabbath. And um, and what happens is, is that, you know, on his second appearing before the uh, before the uh, religious leaders, uh, let me read this, 924. So the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that uh, this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. That's kind of telling. He says, uh, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And so the, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and and you would teach us. And so they cast him out. And then this is the beautiful part of that. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Now, remember, this guy had never seen Jesus with his eyes that could see up to this point. So he doesn't even know what Jesus looks like. So Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And he said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's beautiful. What a beautiful text. I, the, I mean, this is completely 180 degrees different than the direction that Rick Warren is taking this blindness thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you claim to see, so when you claim to see, you show yourself to be blind. When right. You, when you claim to live, you show yourself to be dead. Right. When you claim to be holy, you show yourself to be a sinner. Right. So that so that every single form of self-justification ends up falling back on itself and 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 being, you know, and collapsing. The only justification that stands is that which comes outside of ourselves, the, namely the declaration of 
of of God from the death of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Right. Ugh. And see, here's the deal. I, I fear that Rick Warren, by claiming that he can see all this stuff, is in reality really just confessing uh, unknowingly that he's blind. Because he doesn't see Jesus in this passage, and yet the passage itself is about Jesus. Yeah, this is. Uh, he would say, though, well, of course it's to see Jesus in the past. Jesus is the one that taught this thing. Yeah, he's giving us his strategy. And, but so, so we have Jesus as, as a chief strategizer, <laughs> chief strategic officer, or whatever. Right. Uh, rather than savior. Jesus, the CEO, uh, who's giving us best practices for strategizing a Christ-like ministry. Oh yeah. man, yeah. let's continue. In the world, you could just start a ministry to the blind and have a, an, a, an effective uh, impact on people. But again, just like these other things, there are different kinds of blindness. So you might write these down. First, there's physical blindness. And we need to help people. You know, there's night blindness, there's color blindness, there's motion blindness, there's total blindness, things like that. But there's another one that I see all over America. It's called relational blindness. What? what? <laughs> I probably am so shocked by that because I probably have that blindness. You'll have to ask Carrie. Relational blindness. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, that's what Jesus was talking about. Let's continue. And they are clueless about self-defeating behaviors in relationships. You know, I could I could do a sermon on each one of these points, but we'll just keep going here. The relational blindness, and then the most important of all is spiritual blindness. That's kind of the one I think that Jesus is getting at, don't you? You think? Yep. Yeah, but you know, yeah, we could do a sermon to those who are who are ha- who have relational blindness. <sighs> and the Bible talks about people who close their yeah self defeating relational blindness. Re- relational patterns. Yeah, something like that. Is that is that you know you're sensitive to this stuff? Is that the kind of language that these um these uh the word faith movement would use for like this generational sin kind of stuff? These no, self defeating. I, uh, I think this is a reference back to Rick Warren's uh, le- latest campaign, the Forty Days of Love. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> let's continue. <laughs> And the Bible talks like about the you say, love. love, the oh, 40 days man. of love. Proper Hebrew pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, boy. let's continue. <laughs> and the Bible talks about people who've closed their eyes to the truth and they cannot see God and they cannot see what he's doing. That would be everybody by nature. These are the blind. Jesus said, I came for the shut out, the, the blind. Uh, and then the fifth kind of people Jesus came for are the oppressed. And I call these people the kicked around. The kicked around. These are the kicked around people in life. Uh, they are oppressed. And again, there are many different kinds of oppression. So let me, let me give you a couple of those. Uh, of course, there's political oppression. This last year, uh, about 156,000 Christians died for their faith. Did you know that? More people died in the last year for their faith than were ever killed in the Colosseum. Religious persecution is real and is increasing. Political oppression. Right now in the world, there are about 35 million refugees. That means they can't go home because of political issues. Isn't political oppression a fruit of sin and rebellion against God? 
this is a uh, again I'm astounded that this guy has all these numbers. This is an amazing sort of thing. I, I uh, it's a different sort of mind, I think. But uh, yes, the, the, there will be wars. Uh, and the, the nation will persecute the church. This is Jesus promises that the, these are the these are the not signs that Jesus gives when he talks about the end times. Uh, nation will rise against nation. Uh, they will drag you out and they will beat you in the synagogue, etc. Uh, and then uh, and you will pray for your enemies as you're being persecuted. And the end is not yet. So these things will just mark all times, wars, uh, persecution, and the church interceding on behalf of the world. Right. Um, so, I mean, and so it exists, and it's good to know about it. I mean, I think this is good that we, that we, uh, the church is always being reminded that our brothers and sisters in Christ in different places in the world are being, um, are being beaten and uh, starved and locked up and killed for their confession of Christ. This is a good thing to remember. Right. Yeah, but uh, it, this doesn't square well with the uh, <clears throat> abundant life heresy and the prosperity gospel. Yeah, I love that picture that you made a couple years ago with the Joel Osteen book uh, plastered on the side of a mud hut in South <laughs> Africa or something. Yeah, that's right. Your best life now. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, that's right. Okay, let's continue. And they're uprooted. There are about 27 million people in the world in slavery right now. And the number one kind of slavery is sex trafficking. And we've, we've done some, uh, some work on that. Political oppression. The second is cultural oppression. And, of course, this would include half the world with, with women oppressed in so many different areas. Uh, and I, I could go into a whole list of those, but I don't have time. The third is spiritual impression. Oppression. What is spiritual oppression? Well, it can be depression. It can be stress, it can be pressure, it can be worry. What? <laughs> so if you're stressed out and worried, that's spiritual oppression. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, uh, you, you, would wish, you, you would wish that sometimes he would just, uh, you, you know, uh, ratchet up the, uh, the diving mask and go just a little bit deeper yeah. uh, to get to the root of all, all of these different troubles, which is our... Uh, utter rebellion against God and His gifts. In other words, sin. Right. Uh, but he he he's uh, uh, he 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 is just kind of paddling around the surface where he sees all these different um, the, the different effects of sin mm -hmm. in all these different places. And and then and here and so here's the problem is so say you go to the doctor and he and he lacks the technology to do like a, a CAT scan or an X-ray or something and he's just touching around on the surface and he sees uh, uh, one problem manifest in your foot, another problem manifest in your hair, another problem manifest in your eyes or something, but he can't see on the inside to see what it, where it's all coming from. And so he's going he's gonna to put a Band-Aid here and a cast there and, uh, and uh, you know, some sort of balm over here, but it, really what you need is a, you know, a heart transplant. Or uh -huh, right. Uh, but it's never going to get to the root of it, which is the uh, sin and absolution or forgiveness. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the, uh, that, that what you just said is very ironic because the whole point of radicalis and why he picked that word is because radicalis is talking about getting to the root of things. But when it comes to sin, he's not getting to the root. He's only looking at the stuff that's on the surface. He's not getting down to the root of sin, which is our rebellion and bond that, that our wills are bound 
to sin, death, and the devil, that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. And all of this that he's describing is the fruit of our rebellion against God, and it go, and that's the root itself, our rebellion and, and sinfulness. Oh, man. Let's continue. Now, it's interesting that then Jesus says, after I have all of these things, he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is that? That is the year of Jubilee. Now, it's interesting that the year of Jubilee, in the year of Jubilee, several things would happen. Number one, uh, all your debts were forgiven. Uh, all the slaves were released. Um, all of uh, uh, land reverts to its original owner so there couldn't be speculation. Uh, there were a number of things that happened in the year of Jubilee. But scripture tells us that not once did Israel ever obey the year of Jubilee. Not once. And he, they had said, you know, uh, you know, just like Jesus had said, uh, the Bible has said, every seven days you take a day off. And then he said, every seventh year you let the land rest. And he said, every 70 years you have a year of Jubilee and all debts are forgiven and all land reverts to original people and all the prisoners are released and you were to forgive everybody and all of that. And they never did it. Okay, I, I want to pause there because where he's going to go with this is absolutely, it, it's, it's a real... You know, you might get whiplash. I mean, when you see where he goes with this. But isn't the year of Jubilee really pointing us to Christ and his forgiveness of our sins? I mean, us being released and set free and from bondage and dead and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the year of Jubilee sounds to me like it's a harbinger of the gospel itself. Yes, it is. And I don't know, I don't know by the way, that... Um if uh, just a couple of kind of fact-checking things here, I'm not sure the Bible tells us that they never celebrated it. Uh, it just never says that they did. So there's a possibility that the people might have celebrated it. Uh, we just don't know about it. And I think if I I'm, and I'm checking on this, Chris, because I think that uh, the Jubilee was every seven Sabbaths, so it was every. 49 and the 50th year was the Jubilee. Yeah. Uh, not the 70th year. Uh, but that's, I mean, he, this guy, he knows all these numbers, uh, which is really, uh, <laughs> I mean, but you got this one, uh, I'm not sure he got right. Okay. Uh, but, but, but yes, I mean, this is, th that Jesus uses, the, uh, I mean, Isaiah in his preaching is using these um, themes from the year of Jubilee to point to the work of the Messiah is precisely uh, is precisely the point. Um, it, it is uh, it, it is Jesus, like, like Paul says, in Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen. The the, the whole uh, cultic law of the Old Testament, if you'll let me call it that, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the 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 the, the, the Sabbaths, the festivals, everything. These are all. Uh, pointing to Jesus, right, uh, and, and pointing to His work on the cross, pointing to His kingdom, the church, where 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 forgiveness of sins has freedom and f free course in the world. All of this, so to so to see the jubilee as as uh, as a preaching of Christ is precisely how we uh, how we should. Uh, I'm 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 not sure to see the jubilee as the as the preaching of the ministry of Saddleback is uh, exactly how we should be seeing it. <laughs> All right, let's continue to see where he goes with this. Again, you might want to put a neck brace on. You could get whiplash when you hear what he does here. Here we go. 
So God imposed a year of Jubilee in the 70 years that they were in bondage in Babylon. So the whole thing, the reason why they were taken to Babylon was because they didn't practice Jubilee, therefore God imposed one on them. You get, you get this, uh, so it is, this is true. So Jubilee is um, every, every seventh, seventh, every seventh Sabbath, uh, Sabbath year. So it is the 50th year. And, the, and you do have this, there is, um, uh, and I think, uh, I'd have to track this down, but the prophet Jeremiah does talk about how the 70 years of deportation is to give the land rest because they um, because they didn't give it rest. So so the Lord is is um, he says if you're not going to give the land rest, I'll I'll make it rest. And there's other things that go into the deportation as well. Okay. But, but you do get this prophetic preaching that the that the exile is uh, the Lord saying I'll take my jubilee years now. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know the reference for that though. We we'd have to do a little work to track that down. Also, I don't know if he's going to give us one. Okay. I, I, all right. So the, 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 he has some biblical touchstone to this. And I think that's kind of missing, that's kind of a minor point in the bigger point, and the reason why God sent them off into exile was because of their idolatry and rebellion against God. Right. You know, I mean, it was so bad, they had uh, they had little grottos in Solomon's temple to Asherah and to Baal and to Molech and, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the entire Old Testament is uh, is simply the Lord uh, reminding the people about the first commandment and then punishing their forgetfulness for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. All right, let's see where he continues. Let's go. And the land rested in that day. Now, what do we learn from all of this about Jesus' model? What, what Jesus just said, he said, this is being fulfilled in you today. He said, this is what I came to do. You know, when some... That's, uh, that's a little two-step, isn't it? If, you, if someone uses the word model, uh-huh. it's two-step. You're doing the heresy two-step. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> Jesus is not declaring his model here. Okay. Oh, boy. Let's continue. You know, when somebody gets up and says, here's my initial message and here's what I'm saying to the world, here's what I came to do, you better listen. Jesus said, I came for the poor and the brokenhearted and the imprisoned and the blind and the oppressed, the have-nots, the let down, the locked up, the shut out, and the kicked around. And that the point is, is that Jesus basically is saying he's come for everybody. Yeah, he's come. It, it would be what do you say? He's come for me. This is what uh, this is how the sermon should be great. This he's saying he came for me, and he came for you, and he came for all of us. Not no matter what your condition, no matter where you are in life, no matter how bad things are, no matter what, he came for you. His blood is for you. His death is for you. His forgiveness is for you. His resurrection is for you. His life is for you. That's exactly what he's saying. Here. Right. And and after listening to Rick Warren list i mean i'm somebody might sit there and go i wonder if i'm on this list <laughs> you know let's continue well what does it tell us well number one it tells us that ministry is all about hurting people it's all about hurting people not the people who are doing well he said the well don't need a doctor so jesus didn't come for them you, you see what <laughs> well, i'm what, you know that's what jesus says of course the point is What Jesus is saying is if you think you're well, then you have cut yourself off from my mercy. Right. Uh, So so that the point is that we should all see ourselves as hurting people, if you want to use this language. So that the law pushes us, it diagnoses our hurt and our pain and all of this, uh, if the law is preached rightly. Okay, well, let's see where he goes. He says it's all about hurting people. Okay. 
That's, if you want to have a Christ-like ministry, you care about the hurts of people. Number two, he says, I'm going to preach to the needs and the hurts of people. Okay, listen to this one. Now, today, preaching to, quote, felt needs is the whipping boy of many people, critics. They, oh, you're just preaching to felt needs. You're just preaching to the hurts of people. You're, you're just, that's shallow preaching. There's a word for that, folks. It's Christ-like preaching. So this is a proof text for preaching for felt needs. Oh, man. He's talking about you, isn't he? Uh, yeah. He's, Chris Roseborough. He says under his breath, Chris Roseborough. Yeah, yeah, I'm one of them. So yeah, I, <laughs> I'm that splinter under the skin that he can see, but he can't see, figure out how to dig it out. Okay, let's continue. Jesus said, this is what I came to do. I came to help people who are locked up and shut out and kicked around and have not and they're let down. This is what I came to do. That's radical compassion. When you study the ministry of Jesus, you'll find that every time somebody came to Jesus, for a legitimate reason, not to criticize him, they came because of a need or a hurt or a question. And you know what? Jesus never put them down for coming because of a need or a hurt or a question. Now, I, I got to challenge this on this point. Even Jesus's critics actually came to him because of a need. Their need was that they were sinners. And Jesus did basically bash them over the head to make them see that they needed him, you know? Yeah, that's true. He was loving them by showing them their utter sinfulness, and right. their blindness, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed sepulchers, <laughs> you know? You know, you're, you, you, outwardly you are, you look shiny and white, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. They See, they came to Jesus to critique him, and Jesus actually was trying to show them their need for him, mm -hmm. you know, by blasting their self-righteousness and basically making them see that they're spiritually bankrupt. Well, I'm trying to figure out what who Rick is preaching against because um, uh, do do you know churches that uh, and Christians that are completely unmoved by the kind of these physical or or emotional needs of people or, around? I mean, uh, I'm not sure this exists, but uh, no, it doesn't. It, it that's the thing when you really look at Christian history. I mean, all the you know, I used to work in the hospital industry. I mean, the majority of the hospitals that are out there. In the world, are you, know, you got the Methodist health system, the Presbyterian health system, a gaggle of Catholic health systems. I mean, when you when you look at over the you know, the history of the years here, when you, uh, who was it that took care of of the poor throughout you know the past centuries? Who fought against uh, slavery? It was the church. It long before Rick Warren came around. You know, so the thing is, is that when you preach the gospel and Christ raises people from the dead through the preaching of his word and by washing them in the waters of baptism and forgiving their sins, they're raised, they're raised to new life. They're not, they're, they're ontologically different and they bear good, they bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. They can't help but do so. We're saved to good works. You know, and where Christ is is raised people from the dead, you see you see people, you know, going out and loving and caring for their neighbor, not because they're saved by such things, but because that's what they do by nature. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And to think that a Christian or a pastor or a church or whatever is going to is going to um, 
is going to someone's going to come to them with a you know a specific problem, spiritual problem or whatever. You know, so uh, uh, the, the, here 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 is a person who has an addiction to gambling, and then here's a person who is uh, who has depression, and here's a person who is who's proud. I mean, and, and the fact that. Uh, that each person has a, kind of a different manifestation of original sin. You're, you're not going to kind of put each person through a, a cookie cruncher sort of thing. You're, you're going to you, you listen and you uh, and you diagnose and you preach the Lord's law and gospel. This is what uh, the, this ancient art of Zalesorga is the the care of souls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so so that. I think it's a straw man that he's fighting against here, but the, but the real, like you said, Chris, the real problem is that even though you can diagnose these different problems, I mean, this person is hungry and this person is poor and this person is um, has relational blindness or whatever. Uh, it, it doesn't. You still got to get to the root of it, which is sin and rebellion against God. Yep. Yep. All right. Let's continue. See where he goes. He didn't make them feel, oh, that's illegitimate for you to come to Christ because of a need or a hurt or a question. And so, uh, frankly, I don't care why people come to Christ as long as they come to come to him. Now, everything we do at Saddleback Church is based on the model and strategy of Jesus. The preaching model of Jesus, the discipleship model of Jesus, the membership model of Jesus, the fel- and by the way, this is a, a uniquely this is a unique interpretation on Je- on Rick Warren's part. You know the Jesus model for all of these different things. He basically analyzed what Christ did in light of quote best practices, and came up with a way of distilling Jesus's best practices so that they can apply those there, which is a very unique CEO way of looking at things. If you think about it, you know what my model and strategy is, by the way. No, I didn't know you had one. Yeah, yeah, this is it. I'll tell you. It's pretty easy. Just wing it. <laughs> there you go. How so, much does it cost to go to Radicalis Conference? I'll, uh, that, I'll, that only costs you half the price there, Chris. Right. My model and strategy. So I think we should, we should, have, the, the, we should have a conference, and we can call it the Wingnut, uh, the wingnut Conference. Throw your models and strategies out the door. The Lord takes particular delight in overthrowing man's plans. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't have any plans, then you have le- uh, less likelihood of having the Lord overthrow them. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny is is that all the plans I made for my life, God had other plans, and he, he kind of really forced me into a different direction. I mean, when I was growing up, I did not say, you know what I really want to do? I want to be a theologian, and I want to have an internet-based radio station. I mean, that's not what I envisioned for myself. And I don't know why. That's what most uh, young men dream of. Right. You know, and the funny thing was is that I have an MBA. I was a CEO. I had full—basically, my plans for my life were to— you know, to be a successful business guy, you know? And, you know, I studied theology to kind of deal with my own garbage in my life. And uh, and God had different plans for it. He, you know, forced me into this thing. So I don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. <laughs> You've got a lot left in today that I don't know about. Yeah, it's still early. Just winging it. Yeah, all right. Here we go. Fellowship model of Jesus, the worship model of Jesus. So let's look at these things, what Jesus came to do from his own words. Why is it important to study the model of Jesus? Because Jesus said this in John 13. There on your outline. I have given you an example to follow. Now do as I have done for you. Jesus gave us the model. And he says, the father told me what to say and how to say it. He should be your model for preaching. 
Now, if you truly want to help the people who come to you or that don't come to you and are in your community, you must do the same things Jesus did. Uh, law. Okay. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah, but see, the thing is, it's not, it's, you must do the things that Jesus did. And I've taken an MBA level Drucker look at what Jesus did and have distilled it down into his best practices, have figured out his strategy, his tactics, his vision, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm laying it out for you in this MBA level uh, look at what, at the Jesus model. It is a bit frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, Jesus there in John 13, when he's saying what, um, when he's showing, when he says, follow my example, it's a, something, it's just a specific sort of thing. It's when he's washing the disciples' feet. And what he's saying here, I mean, is that, look, your love for, for one another uh, binds you to one another. So Paul will say, oh, nobody anything except the debt of love. That's mm-hmm. Romans 13. So right. that we do owe uh, Jesus... Uh, makes us debtors to our neighbor to to love them. Uh, true enough. And so we try, uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, to begin to love our neighbor. Uh, but every time we try, we fail, and it sends us straight back to, to the cross where Jesus didn't fail in his love for us. Right. Yeah, it's funny that he said, you have to follow my example, and he completely omits the part about the feet-washing thing. See, the thing is, is that the CEO model model of leadership is not about foot washing. It's about um, casting vision, being the guy up at the front, and empowering everybody else to do the work. Isn't that something? So, so that the example of Jesus is in precise contradiction to the whole model that's being followed by the CEO vision caster. Right, exactly, because you don't have the CEO vision casters serving and feeding God's sheep and, and doing the humble work of a shepherd. They're, they're the point guard in the Fortune 500 uh, way of looking at things. And, uh, and, 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 and so they're the powerful jet-setting guys who are casting vision out in front of what God wants to do and then basically telling everyone what the vision is and then turning around and then measuring their results to make sure they're, they're, they're on track to fulfill the mission using the strategies that Jesus came up with. You know, there is this other uh, passage in the Scripture where it says that Christ is our example. Uh, uh, here, it's, this is First uh, Peter 2, uh, 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Uh, and then what is, so what is the example of Jesus? It's his suffering. Right. In fact... This, uh, th- this is what Jesus offers as the mark, if you will, of someone who's following after him, is that he suffers. Mm-hmm. But if anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his cross. Daily. Not as, yeah, yeah, not as a lazy boy or not as, um, you know, whatever else. Let him take up his cross and follow me so that the, so that the mark of a follower of Jesus is suffering. Uh, in in all sorts of different ways, right? And and uh, and so this is so Christ is our example in suffering. He he gave us. I mean, we had the, what did we have? Jesus as the model for the, the preaching model, the ministry model, the etc. etc. The real model that Jesus is is the suffering model. Yeah, <laughs> that was. That was left out, though. I didn't hear it. Maybe it's coming up next. Yeah, I, I'm thinking that uh, I'm going to put together a, a 40 days uh, program for just specifically for Rick Warren and these CEO guys, and uh, I'm going to call it 40 Days of Hermeneutics. <laughs> and that could be followed by the 40 Days of Suffering. Right, was... yeah, exactly. That, there we go, 40 Days of Suffering. <laughs> Wait, isn't that called Lent? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, suffering is never self-imposed. That's the problem. Uh, yeah. See, suffering is not something you can control. <laughs> See, when you get something into a model, then you then you can control it. You right. Know? You can you can have your hands all over it. You can you can manipulate it and have it do what you want. But there's no there's no model for suffering. The Lord will keep His hands on that and keep your hands off of it. And so <laughs> yeah, you you get to just experience it. And uh, and you know, it, in fact, in some cases, the more you fight against the suffering, the more suffering you experience. I know, but this is exactly what these guys are deadly afraid of, is is something being out of their control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And that's why they can't talk about suffering, because suffering it, it takes things out of your hands, and it's in, now things are in the hands of God. And I, I, I am the... I am the object, and he, he wait, how does this go? He, he's the subject, I'm the object. I should have learned grammar better. He's the one doing the work, and I'm the one being worked on. Right. And this is what these guys are deadly afraid of. I've got to, with my heresy two-step and all this sort of stuff, I've got to be able to manipulate and control God, sort out his secret formulas and stuff, as right. if God is not a person, as he's some sort of economic formula, and I'm trying to reverse engineer some sort of successful business model or something. Right. It's almost like their God is Zeus, and they're trying to figure out a way to steal his lightning bolts. But yeah. but God will not be... He will be active, and we will be passive in this whole thing. He's going to work on us, and he's going to conform us to his image by mm. the things that he sends to us, right. uh, namely his word and his gospel and the suffering that we have in our life. Right on. Let's continue. You must minister to them the way Jesus did. The Bible says that crowds followed Jesus. Yeah, but the Bible also says that when Jesus was on the cross, it was the crowds who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah, you know, the the ministry of Jesus is marked this way, uh, classically, is that the first half of the ministry, more and more people are following him, and then the last half of his ministry, less and less people are following him. So the crowds come, and then the crowds go. And, and, and the more the cross is preached, the less the crowds stick around. Right. Well, the crowds there, while Pontius Pilate is putting Jesus on trial, and basically, uh, you know, it's, it's basically saying, should I release to you Barabbas or should I release to you Jesus? And they say, we want Barabbas. And they say, well, and he says, what should I do with Jesus? And they shout, crucify him, crucify him. And then, and then he says, well, his blood be on you. And, and their response is, yes, let his blood be on us and on our children too. <laughs> there's, there's the crowd. Yeah. You know, if you really want to do a theology of the crowd, it was the crowd that was calling for Jesus's crucifixion. The theology of the crowd. <laughs> that has potential right there. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I got to copyright that real quick so I can, you know, I can I can go make the conference circuit with this theology of the crowd. You could come up with Jesus's crowd model. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, Jesus didn't seem to be in control of that very well, you know, even though he employed the best ministry tactics and strategy ever. <laughs> yeah, who was the masters at manipulating the crowd? I mean, here's Pilate, who's who's got his, also has his MBA from whatever Roman university and stuff, but he can't control the crowd. The Pharisees are masters at manipulating the crowds. Ooh, uh, that, that I think that works really well into the crown theology. That should be point three. Okay, <laughs> let's continue. Enormous crowds, huge crowds. In fact, the Bible calls them multitudes. Today, if Jesus had a crowd, they'd say, oh, you're just weakening the message and shallow preaching so you can get a crowd. He's a bit defensive. Jesus. I noticed that, too. He had a little bit defensive. 
I I think Rick Warren has an insecurity thing going on because he talks about him so much. It's like he's trying to compensate for something. So, but I, but I shouldn't psychologize Rick because I, I don't have a, a a degree in psychology. So, just something I've noticed. We continue. Jesus certainly didn't compromise the message. He certainly didn't, uh, you know, cave in, and he certainly wasn't compromising. You don't have to compromise the message to get a crowd. You just have to preach and minister like Jesus. Again, this this rings so hollow when you really look at the, the theology of the crowd. The crowd disappears by the time he's on the cross, you know? <sighs> yeah, there's all these times where the crowd leaves Jesus, and he says, okay, you know, go, go to it. And we see why the... I mean, uh, why the crowd comes, you know, Jesus is performing all these miracles, which I think Jesus, I mean, you can't say he doesn't want to perform miracles, but in a way, he doesn't want to perform miracles. He didn't come to do these miracles. He came to preach and to teach and to die. Right. And these miracles are almost, um, uh, they kind of get in the way of things, you know. In the beginning of Mark, he does these miracles, and he says, look, don't tell anyone. But the guy goes, the leper goes and tells everyone, and now he's got to be out in the in the wilderness Right, uh, because there's no place for him, and it's there's this reluctance. I mean, you know, understand it rightly, because Jesus never refuses to do a miracle ever. I mean, someone comes to him with any sort of trouble, and he and he fixes it. He he heals it. Right. But it, but but he's trying to keep this silent because he what he wants to echo out is his voice, the preaching of the gospel. Right. Uh, so so. Uh, um, but but the, so the people hear about the they hear about that Jesus can do miracles that he can give food that he can do all this stuff and they come and they they're looking for these miracles and then he'll almost say when when the crowd gets too big he'll say look at this is not the thing uh, this is the food is not the thing the health is not the thing the thing is the cross right uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no part of me and the crowds go away right yeah Jesus's great church shrinkage sermon from yeah. John then, chapter six but but then the point is Jesus says to the disciples will you also leave and Peter gets it right when he says Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life in other right. words what we're here for is your words right not, not anything else from you what we want from you is your words word because right. your word is what is what gives us eternal life and, and so the the people that stick with jesus are the, not the people that he heals necessarily or the people that he feeds or the people that he whose who, whose daughters he raised from the dead and things like this the people that stick with jesus are the people that know that from his mouth comes words of life right in fact jesus himself points out the fact that the miracles that he does verify who he is and that he was sent by the Father. They testify about him. And the people who get caught up in the miracles and Jesus meeting felt needs, they're missing the point of the miracle. The miracle is to point you to Christ and what he's doing for you. And those who get caught up in the temporal felt needs piece of it, they're driven away when Jesus begins preaching the hard things that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. They're going, ew, yuck, gross, we're out of here. You know, despite the fact that he fed them and healed them and all that kind of stuff. All right, well, let's continue. By the way, I got. I'm gonna. We're gonna. Ha- we're not gonna get all the way through this sermon, and we're we're getting close to uh, the Pastor Wolfmuller's limit. He has uh, some 
prior engagements. And so we can probably go about maybe what eight, ten more minutes, Pastor Wolf Mueller. Oh yeah, we'll push it. But yeah, yeah, that's about yeah, that's right. We have about fifteen minutes, probably. Okay. How long right. have we been doing this? Goodness sakes, look at the clock. <laughs> I can't. Believe, your show goes on and on, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just like to hear myself talk. I oh, dude, <laughs> Rick Ward, if you start telling me exactly how many people are listening and oh yeah, <laughs> you know, you see, I always look at my stats and go, man, if it's growing, I must not be pushing the gospel hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You have have this thing where if you could get as many people listening to Pirate Christian Radio in a in a week as uh, Rick Warren has coming to Saddleback in a week, and then you'll. Um, yeah, that's kind of the funny thing. I don't, I don't toot that horn, but, uh, let's just say that most of these CEO pastors who talk about their numbers and how big they are, the, the audience for pirate Christian radio dwarfs their, their attendance at their church. And yet those are the guys being flown around because they're able to quote, you know, get these numbers. Yeah. If, if they only knew. <laughs> that's pretty funny. All right, let's continue. <laughs> Jesus had a crowd. Why? They, they thronged around him. It says the large crowds listened to him with delight. Do they do that with you? <laughs> oh, man. Christ-like ministry. If you genuinely love people the way Jesus does, you'd have to lock the doors to keep people out because people are looking for love. Again, this is very, he's suppressing the whole truth regarding the theology of the crowd. <sighs> we continue. Now, what did Jesus do? If you want to be like Christ in ministry, in radical compassion, you need to follow his example. Believe me, if there was anything more important to do, Jesus would have done it. But in this passage, and he quotes Isaiah, he announces the, not only who he came for, he tells us what he came to do. What did he come to do? Five things. Number one, Jesus expects you to preach good news. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Hold on a second here. He just said at the beginning of that sentence, he, Jesus is announcing the things he came to do. And then mid-sentence, he says, Jesus expects you to preach good news. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> I know, and this is the odd thing, you know. Of course, Jesus is only preaching about what he practices, you know. Yeah, exactly. And Rick should be only be preaching about what he practices. So the question I have for you, because you listen to this stuff all the time, is: Does Rick Warren himself preach good news? Sometimes that—that's the thing. Rick Warren is fully aware of what the gospel message is. The thing is, is that when he when he does actually preach it. It comes off sounding like kind of a hallmark greeting card, and so he'll say things like, "And you know, you got to you got to picture Rick Warren stretching out his arms." He'll say things like, "God was saying, I can't live without you, and so I went to the cross and stretched out my arms and died for you and showed you that I love you this much." Stretching out your hands, you know, and so when he preaches the gospel, he knows what it is, but it always comes off as smarmy, drippy, ooey gooey. Um, you know, hallmark sentimentality, you know, I, I can't live without you. And so I'm going to die for you. There's an aspect to that, which is true, but man, does it kind of not really have the bite that the real thing does anyway? Yeah, that's, I mean, this is because we haven't gotten any good news yet. Well, uh, and in fact, there's there, and there's good news to be had in this passage. Lots uh, but, of it. But we haven't gotten any yet. Well, let's find out what he means by good news. Maybe he'll we'll get a gospel nugget. Not bad news. 
not current news, not out-of-date news, good news. That's a Lutheran, out-of-date. He says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. That is the first and foremost, a Christ-like ministry is evangelistic. Okay. Why? Because Jesus said, I didn't come for the saved people. I didn't come for the healthy people. I came for those who need a doctor. Whoa. Now, that that right there is really bad. Oh, I I can't believe what I just heard. Okay. Do you see see what he did? Is he put the the healthy people and the saved people as the same thing? Yeah. So when Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy but the sick, what, what he means by healthy is those who are the sick people who are deceived about their own health. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees, uh, th- those who think they need me not, have they, they, these are the ones that have uh, that have uh, cut themselves off from my grace, from my medicine, from my mercy, from my love. Uh, uh, but then Rick is going to say that those are the saved. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Those for him, the healthy quote healthy are the damned. Right. Jesus is when he says, "I am the good shepherd, laid on my life for the sheep." He he is that his ministry is to his people. Now that's not to exclude the people that are out. Of course not. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to draw all people into his church. But to say that Jesus and and that the ministry of the church is not for the Christian, but for the non-Christian, this is. Uh, it is well. It's first of all drawing a false dichotomy and a very, very dangerous one. Because you see, all these pastors that are sitting there are going to say, "Ah, I've been focusing on the wrong thing all this time. I've been focusing on teaching the Lord's word to His people, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, but that's not what I'm supposed. If I'm going to have a Christ-like ministry, I, my 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 complete focus is going to be not on these people, but on the people that are outside. And the danger is neglect. I mean. If you read through the Bible, you see over and over and over that what the, the, the preachers there, the prophets and the apostles, what they're getting at is that, look, now you're a Christian, now you have faith in Jesus, now you, now you, you have salvation, but do not neglect this word that's in you. Do not neglect this faith, because the danger of apostasy and of falling away from the Lord is very, very real. Right. And this is precisely what Moses preaches as he's about as he's about to die when the people are going over to the Promised Land. It's, a, it's what Joshua preaches at his death. It's what the whole uh, book of Isaiah is about. It's what Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus uh, to these pastors. It's what uh, uh, it's what Peter says in his epistle. I mean, it's constantly look at. Uh, being a Christian is not safe. The devil is constantly after you, trying to snatch away the Word of God that's implanted in your heart. So treasure it. Cling to it. Don't fall away from it. Do not neglect it. Remember and constantly hear God's Word for Mm -hmm. your own salvation. Right. Now, this is interesting here, because you're right. He's saying preaching good news is evangelistic. Notice he's saying preaching the gospel is for evangelism. And 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 basically, it's not for the saved. This is one of the reasons why these guys have just a really tough time preaching the gospel to quote people who've already made a decision for Christ because they think the gospel is just for evangelism and that it doesn't it doesn't have a purpose for those who are saved. Right. I I and I don't know if it's from this kind of this leftover uh, Calvin eternal security sort of thing. Once God's got you in his headlock, he won't let you go sort of thing. But the, the, uh, the, the, this is very, very bad. That The gospel gets you in the door and the law keeps you in, or the law is now what you're to be occupied. Right. I mean, it's, it's 
our Christian lives are start to finish Jesus, start to finish uh, crucifixion, start to finish his blood. I mean, there's never a time when we don't need the Lord's forgiveness. Right. The entire Christian life is one of repentance, daily repentance. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's this amazing thing to kind of see this in the mind of Rick Warren, because he sees good news, and he thinks a gospel to the uh, to the unbeliever. Right. And that's a, I mean he's importing his own theology into the text and mm. and it's that is certainly not there. Right. Uh, but, but it's an amazing uh, sort of thing to be able to see and 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 like we said dangerous because to say that the saved are the healthy uh like Jesus says that the healthy don't need a doctor uh-huh. is a is a is precisely the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying with that text. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's it's the it's the sick who are the saved because they know that they're sick. Exactly. All right, let's continue. The well don't need a doctor. If you're going to have a Christ-like ministry, it must be evangelistic. It must focus on reaching people who don't know Christ. And the most helpful thing you can do for anybody anywhere in ministry is not ease their pain, it's give them the good news. Because that solves their deepest problem. Jesus is the answer to every one of our deep problems. And the first place you start with is the people around you. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You preach the good news. Second thing Jesus said I came to do. I expect you to heal the brokenhearted. He, so now, so Jesus here in Luke 4 is telling us that he expects us to heal the brokenhearted. Yeah, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I'm serious. I don't even think evil Knievel can jump that hermeneutical chasm. <laughs> what the, the, you know, the problem is, this is amazing. Uh, it, it, because one of the things I kind of have this growing um, frustration with is that the the thing that the Lord Jesus has actually sent us to do, which is to forgive sins. Remember in the end of John, Jesus breathes on his disciples and he says, hey, go and forgive sins. Right. Whatever sins you bind, they're bound. Whatever sins you loose, they're loosed. As on earth, as in heaven. So that Jesus actually sends out his disciples and his church to do, to, to do a couple of things. To forgive sins. Right uh, to baptize and to teach to uh, do this in remembrance of me. That's the uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. He sends us out to do these sorts of things, uh, and these actually have His command. Right. But what what Rick is doing is is he's taking these promises of God here. This is what I've come to do, and he's turning them into the command. Yeah. But the problem is to the complete neglect of the command. Yeah. So that so that you would never get uh, in the Radicalis Conference something as radical as the fact that the Lord Jesus has given the authority to forgive sins to men, namely to the church, uh-huh. to mankind. You would never get something as radical as the fact that, it, that, that, that Jesus has put in the mouths of his Christians the authoritative word of forgiving sin. Yep. And which, which is, is what Jesus has commanded us to do. You never get that. Which is one of the reasons why on this program I'm constantly telling people that Christ forgives them, that he died for their sins. You know, I'm, I'm in, in a sense... I'm pronouncing absolution over my listeners, you know? Right, which is what you what we should be doing constantly, absolving one another and forgiving one another, uh, and not because Jesus modeled it, but because he told us to do it. Exactly, confessing our sins one to another, and that, that and forgiving, 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 announcing the forgiveness of sins. Oh. 
so it is a strange sort of thing where now, so, so that you 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 don't go when you say what should we do. You don't go to the to the texts where Jesus tells us what to do. You go to the text that tells tell us what Jesus did, mm-hmm. and then you say, now this is Jesus commanding us what to do. It, it, it's yeah. just the very. It's not <clears throat> as if the the scriptures lack texts that tell us what we ought to do. That you have to go and find more. Well, see, the thing is, the things that Jesus tells us to do don't fit in the CEO model of leadership. <laughs> Alas! <laughs> oh, no, sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. That, they fit the pastoral shepherd chaplain model of leadership that these guys reject. So, all right, let's continue. We, we have just a couple more minutes here with you. Why? Because he said, that's what I came to do. I came to heal the brokenhearted. And friends, there are hurting people all around you. In fact, if you don't see it, you're just not looking. You're not listening. It means you're moving too fast. When you don't have time for the hurting needs of other people, your ministry priorities are out of order. You know, if if I take a plane across the country, I don't see much because I'm going at 600 miles an hour or 350 miles an hour, whatever. If I take a train across the country, I see a little bit more because I'm going a little bit slower. If I take a car, I see a little bit more. If I walked across America, I'd see a lot of things I'd miss otherwise. If you want to minister to people as a friend and brother in Christ, let me tell you this. Slow down. Slow down. Because you can't hear the cries of others if you're moving fast. You can't see it. Now, let me tell you another thing I've learned after 30 years here at Saddleback. And by the way, Chris, I appreciate that, what he just said there. I mean, I think that's right. He's talking about listening to people, to being a pastor, to... To, to not thinking that uh, you know uh, we uh, that everybody is the same and and that we can uh, and that we can be pastors to people without uh, knowing them and knowing their names and things like this. So I I mean I appreciate exactly what he said and I think that what he said there is exactly right. Yeah, but see that slowing down metaphor that he just gave doesn't work with the CEO model of leadership. It would actually require the pastors to go back to being pastors and shepherds and knowing their sheep and spending time with them and getting to know them and praying with them and crying with them and uh and and, and shepherding them don't you think oh yeah i mean i i mean i'm terrible at this i'm i'm trying to do an every member visit in my congregation and i've been at it for two and a half years now oh, but this is but but this is bad i mean it's it's my cause for my daily repentance that is taking so long but i think this is important that you know that that the pastor is is uh, is there uh, in the homes of the Lord's people, right? Uh, and that he and, and in their lives and all of this. So, I mean, you just should take that little soundbite there and say, "This is what, according to Rick Warren, this is what a pastor should be," and take it out of, to totally uh, take it out of context, <laughs> <laughs> like he does with the Bible. Yeah, well, well, you. <laughs> And use that because that what he just said right there is right that we got to slow down and listen precisely. Yeah. But see, the thing is, you can't do that if you have five thousand people showing up at your church. You, there's no possible way you're going to get to know anybody. I know. I, I think this, that we are in a big uh, one of our biggest problems today in the church is that churches are too big, uh, and it and and precisely precludes the kind of pastoring that. Uh, Jesus would have in his church. Right. And those who are saying, hey, wait, pastor, I have, 
you know, I don't like the way things are set up because I have some real deep needs and questions and, and you don't have any time for me. Those people are viewed as critics and then they're shown the door. Yep. You know, so anyway, you know what? I think we should probably stop right here because I, I, I want to be sensitive to your time. And I think that we kind of made the points that need to be made. I mean, you got the gist of where this whole thing is going. He's turned Christ's promises into commands. He's ignoring the commands that are in Scripture. And, you know, as a result of it, we've got some real confusion. And the confusion really comes from the fact that he's approaching this from the completely wrong model of leadership when it comes to being a pastor. He's got a, he, This is an industry conference speech given to a bunch of other people who've bought into the wrong model of leadership. Jesus wasn't a Druckerite. He was all about shepherding. Yeah, I mean, he is, uh, he's the one who leads us uh, by the still waters, right. who makes us lie down in green pastures. He, he's the one who has restored our soul by handing himself over to the wrath of God in our place. Uh, so that it's in Christ, precisely in Christ, that we have all of these good gifts. Uh, we have his riches, his freedom, his life, his mercy, his good news, his absolution, all of this. And the church is on earth precisely for the reason of delivering this Jesus and this mercy to to people. Right. That's why he established his church, so, so that his word of forgiveness would go throughout all of the world, uh, so that we can say, I mean, uh, in the church, that, that as we receive uh, the absolution, the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, as we receive the, the Lord's Supper and the gift of baptism, that Jesus is doing these things that the Messiah came to do right. uh, to us, and we can rejoice in his work on us. Right, preaching good news to the poor, releasing the captives, and the, the, declaring the year of the Lord's favor in his jubilee, because this this year of the Lord's favor is has been here since Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And this year of the Lord's favor does come to an end when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So, all right. Thank you, Pastor Wolf Mueller. It was great to have you uh, sit in on today's sermon review. Well, it's it's always a pleasure. Thank you, and thank you for everything that you're doing with Pirate Christian Radio and uh, and all the listeners out there and the whole conversation. What I told you, Chris, that one of the things I want to do this year is is, is, uh, is to try to stay engaged more in the conversation on on, uh, on Pirate Christian Radio. So I'm I'm so delighted to be a part of it and. Uh, I uh, can't wait to see what the listeners uh, have to say as they as they listen uh, thoughtfully to this whole thing as well. So, All and right. I can't wait to hear what Rick Warren says after he gets this uh, uh, tape and uh, and uh, and calls you up and talks to you about it. <laughs> he he's welcome to call me at any time, and uh, <laughs> you know, so he's more than yeah, I, I. I want I just I I want him to be aware of your felt needs. <laughs> Your, yeah. your felt need of orthodoxy. Yeah, I, exactly. Orthodoxy, <laughs> my felt need. I'm going to have to start putting that one out. I'm stealing that, my, Pastor Wolf Mueller. My, my felt need is orthodox Christian preaching. <laughs> <laughs> that focuses in on Christ and him crucified for my sins. You should make a T-shirt out of that. Oh. Pirate Christian radio crew. Yeah, my felt oh. needs. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> All right. Well, Pastor. Well, thanks, Chris. Lord's blessings to you and to and to Pirate Christian Radio and to all the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Oh man, I just love Pastor Wolf Mueller. Good friend, good pastor, good Christian brother. Always enjoy talking with him and and just insightful stuff that he brought up during our sermon review today. Folks, listen. 
the good news is good news for all of us. And Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4 said that this text was fulfilled in their hearing. You don't have to fulfill that text. Jesus Christ fulfilled it. And he was announcing good news to the poor, to the blind, and to the enslaved. And that's you, and that's me. We are by nature poor, blind, and enslaved. We have nothing to offer God. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're poorer than poor. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you blind spiritually? Don't understand the scriptures? Don't understand? Well, Jesus has come to open your eyes to the glorious light of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for all of your sins. Are you enslaved to grievous sin? Are you enslaved? Yes, by nature you are that. Christ died on the cross and broke the bondage of that sin over your life by dying for it. Repent, therefore, of your sins and receive the free forgiveness won by our great God and Savior Jesus Christ for you. And he's the one who sets you free from slavery to sin. That's the good news. This wasn't a strategy sermon that tells you how to do ministry the way he did. This is a sermon to announce to you the great things that God has done for you, a sinner. <sighs> All right. Well, folks, we're rapidly ending, approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important, Christ-centered, gospel-focused outreach to you as well as to people around the world. You can partner with us in helping us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you by visiting our website and clicking on one of two buttons. The first one says, Join Our Crew. That is, that's the way we, uh, we're in the middle of trying to get a 1,000 of our listeners to join our crew. And once we get to a 1,000, it ensures that month after month we're able to pay our bills. And so the way you uh, join our crew is by clicking on Join Our Crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month. And when you join, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, growing treasure trove of theological resources from across the centuries designed to help you grow in your understanding of the historic Christian faith, good theology, Christ-centered apologetics, sound biblical doctrine, all for you there in the Cove. Of course, if you'd like to donate uh, you know, a, a flat amount of money or above and beyond the six ninety five, you can do so by clicking on our Donate button and donate securely there online, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, so what you think? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me your feedback at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. You, yes, you. Amen. Amen.